Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, whatever part of the world you're in and whatever day part you're in. It's great to have you here. We're at Office Hours. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour, always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer questions submitted by the audience. And we'll be doing that today. Our second hour is typically something we take a deeper dive into. And we're really excited today because uh, our friends Greg Gibson and Chuck Wojak are going to be here demonstrating the power and versatility of Sony's brand new full frame PTZ camera. People have been talking about this and we got a little tiny preview uh, in the pre-show of some of the things it's capable of. It's a pretty exciting piece of equipment. So we'll be talking about that in our second hour today. But for right now, oh, Alex, and, did you have something you want to say? And Noah has one there. Is that one right behind you, Noah? Oh, Noah, you have there? Yeah. Noah came in with the FR7 as well. So we're awesome. very excited. That's nice. Good. So Mitch, let's dive into the regular part of the show. What's our first question today? All right, Bill, first in, Eric Butkus from Chicago. Zoom webinar, ASL, and live captioning, live streaming question. Is it possible to send the ASL interpreter video feed and human-generated live captions, embedded CEA 608, from a Zoom webinar via RTMP or another way? And Alex is going to start us off this morning. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what why you're trying to do that. I think I think if you can maybe ask another question that that gets there because you can, of course, you can send the ASL interpreter as a window that's available in Zoom. Um, as far as getting the 608, 708, there is a linkage that you can create with Zoom so that you can have a human interpreter, not a not a or you can have a machine interpreter, but you can have a human interpreter typing and being directly connected to Zoom so that their captions are coming up across the bottom as well. So if you dig a little into the admin there, you'll, you'll be able to give them a token that will allow them to do that. Um, so that, and then of course you have interpreter interpreters um, that are, you know, audio interpreters that can also have their own connections to, into Zoom. So there's a lot of options for ASL and captioning within Zoom already. I'm not sure why I, I ate RTMP, I mean, you could probably figure out some way to go RTMP to a server and then show up as a screen. And But there's no direct way to do RTMP that I know of into Zoom, but I don't know if you need it. Okay. Uh, hopefully that helped you, Eric. Let's move on to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, has anyone had experience with the Netgear AV line Ethernet switches? There's a link to it there. That's being a Cisco Juniper user. I haven't had any experience with Netgear switching. Well, hopefully Guy can help us out. Guy's going to start us off. Guy? Yeah, we recently picked up the line because a lot of people were asking for a switch that they could use with NDI. And this is one of the first on the market that has uh, profiles that are specifically carved out for uh, NDI, not just NDI, though, also um, uh, Dante. So here's mine running right now. I have the 10 port unit and I'm using uh, ports 11 and 12 with uh, 10 gig and uh, 5 gig SFP modules. But yeah, here's the uh, the bottom where you can pick NDI4, NDI5 with Dante. So the unique thing is that, uh, well, it's not just unique to this one. If you've got experience with Cisco, there, there's what they call backplane speed. So a lot of people that got burned with NDI, they just overloaded the thing. And basically there's not enough bandwidth to handle all the ports. So one of the things, if you take the uh, NDI performance networking classes, they'll, they'll give you the math to, to divide out the ports to see if there's actually physically enough uh, bandwidth to handle. Uh, so these cheap switches, they won't be able to handle full bandwidth all the time. So like I'm running 4K 2160p uh, through the system. So I'm, I've got a red and it's going um, into a bird dog 4K converter and into the machine. And so the, the, the ma main vMix machine is running uh, full 10 gig. So I could handle multiple, you know, 
tons of uh, NDI feeds at, at the full bandwidth. But that's that's the thing is this is the first switch on the market that's designed for NDI to handle it. So we've been selling a ton of them. In fact, some people have been getting them and then needing to upgrade because so if you get one, be sure you get it one with enough ports because that's the first thing that's going to happen. And so I've got uh, PoE on mine. So the thing to also take a look at is if you're going to need PoE plus or PoE plus plus when you're buying. So like this new camera that I got, I had to physically power it because of the uh, the power requirement. So if you're going to be using cameras uh, that are going to have that requirement, make sure you get your switch that has that power consumption requirement. And again, it's all in the specs. Um, they've done a good job online of uh, specking out everything. In fact, mine's sitting right next to me, like within 12 inches. So there's fan speed on the thing too. That's another interesting thing about the design of this one is it's designed to go inside of a studio. So you can even turn the fan completely off. I've got mine on low mode, so it's just barely spinning, but there is a high mode too. That sounds like a jet airplane. So that's about it. Nice. Noah Sargent's going to help us as well. Noah. Yeah, and as a non-IT background person, you know, I come from the video world. Um, this unit was fabulous. It was great. It was actually highly recommended by Bird Dog um, and their team there. So thanks to them for um, connecting me with this one. And uh, I think I have the 16-port switch. I used it for a gig with their cameras, and um, it worked really, really well. It was super easy to create uh, VLANs and different protocols that I am not as familiar with, right? And so, um, Douglas, I know talking about your background and the conversations we've had, I'm, I'm sure um, you'll be able to jump right in. And there's the main menu, which has like the simpler settings and the presets. And then there's also a secondary menu, which allows you to do the advanced features that you're might, you might be used to. Excellent. Mitchell? All that's been said before, I agree 100%. I'm building a Dante network and my five port uh, GS3 Netgear is already obsoleted. So I'm interested in that POEE version, guys. Looking forward to a purchase. That's the thing. The industry moves on. We have to move on with it. No, no, you had a last thought. Yeah, I think the FR7 is POE++. So maybe we'll see if that combo works to power the new camera. We'll see. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, let's kick on to the next question. From Rick Combs, is there a good AI closed caption program for a house of worship that I can use to, with uh, Wirecast? Have used web captioner with no luck. It was like autocorrect on steroids. We live stream to YouTube. And Sky's going to start us out this morning. Our, yes, our house of worship uses uh, goes straight to YouTube as well. And there is a setting in there to allow you to do that. And uh, it's the other person at the other, the, the consumer has to also click that function on when they're viewing it, but it uh, seems to work very well for us. Nice. Alex wants to weigh in as well. Yeah, you, just, you have to decide what scale you want to work at. I mean, the company that's really well known for this is AI Media. And so there's a couple different ways you can either, they have some hardware appliances that you can connect to ICAP or, and that's through the, um, the, the, the EEG hardware um, that's owned by AI Media, or they merged or owned. I'm not sure exactly how that looked, but um, but they have the hardware that will look at ICAP. Um, they have some software solutions that will look at ICAP. And then, of course, you can stream through their servers in AWS to, to have them insert those um, back into... Um, uh, to send them out. And then you have the choice of, of a human. Um, you can have a stenographer, a re-speaker, or AI um, do the do the work for you. So, and it can be also broken into multiple languages. Um, so, there's a lot of different flavors of that that are available. But AI Media is kind of the big name for that now. And we've had them on. They, we had them on for a second hour a couple couple months ago. All right, uh, let's move on to the next question. 
From Douglas Carmichael, Douglas is asking, the Insta360 link has been mentioned as a camera for remote kits many times here on Office Hours. After seeing Guy use an Atomos Zato Connect with the link, I was impressed. Would the, would the link and the Zato, Zato into an A10 Mini be a good choice for a personal studio? And we just saw that Noah has one. So, Noah, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, so I did this combo, and actually was curious if Guy can weigh in on this too. So I was not able to get this to work, and this was probably two months ago when I tried. So basically, it's a screen, the Connect, um, and you can plug in via USB-C that uh, Insta360. So that could be kind of like a portable rig. And on top of that, you can also connect um, like a hotspot or Mr. Ned, uh, um What's the other one we use? Yeah, basically some sort of internet to have some sort of mobile setup. But it sounds like, Guy, you got that to work. Guy, go ahead. Yeah, it's working. The only thing you don't get is control. So you have to set up the shot before with the uh, computer, so Mac or PC. And then with the Zato, you can feed in uh, the USB. So you would unplug it from your computer, plug the USB-C of the Insta360 in. And then if we cut to that camera... So now you're looking at, yeah, that's the Insta360. And it, it is a pretty nice picture. I mean, that, that's why everybody's super happy with this camera is that it's uh, 300 bucks. And, you know, look at the color that you're getting. So this this uh, workflow is Insta360 into the Zato, into the Blackmagic ATEM. So it's, it's not a bad deal, except for you do have to uh, uh, unplug it, disconnect it. I, I saw a guy on YouTube that has a duplicate. It's like a little hardware device that will allow a duplicate uh, uh, webcam. So I'll get that maybe i'll get it i don't know i don't want to promise anything i already spend enough money uh but it, it's <laughs> this guy has this device that he invented that'll take a webcam and split it into two and i think that if we can get the handshake to happen with the computer on the mac or pc using the insta360 link software then we have control of framing and the actual ptz otherwise you're kind of stuck with it but again oh. i'm i'm super impressed with the picture quality Alex has thoughts. Yeah, by itself, the picture quality is still one of the best ones and at the $300 range. They just have a better better sensor. It looks better. But the real power is having that software available. So until, they, until we figure out a, a solid, reliable way to get control of the software, I probably wouldn't put the Connect um, in between um, until, until we knew, knew that we could do that. Um, and I would love for it not to be a hack. <laughs> like us trying to split something out. But really, you know, I, I don't know if, if, uh, the, if they can, if Atomos can can make that work they've got two usbs there it seems like you could connect it but it may not be something that that hardware can do but it would be amazing to be able to convert that little camera and again we're hoping that insta360 is successful with a link and they just do a link pro you know with a with a, a even larger sensor we'd love to see a one inch sensor with hdmi and, and usb out um you know that that would take it to another level courtney your thoughts uh, yeah, I have my 360, and I've been trying to figure out how to get it in. Uh, I did have it as an, an extra camera in Zoom, but I, now I have it plugged into the Melee. This is the uh, 360 coming in from the Melee, but I can't figure out how to go full screen because on Windows, it only can uh, output to one USB device at a time. So if you have the image open and the camera control uh, that you have now, you can see a little bit of delay there. Um, you can't have it feeding to Zoom or anything else. And uh, this is the camera and control. Is, is that just a PC thing? Is that a... 
Uh, no, I well, because on a Mac we didn't know, have it. It just shows so. up everywhere. Like we just we I because I when I use that that um, the Insta three sixty on the Mac, mm-hmm. I routinely have that window open. In fact, I have another screen for it just so I can control it, and it just sits on its own screen. And I just control it over there while I'm you know while I have Memo seeing it and and uh, and potentially Zoom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I mean you, like, it has this this little switch down here in the corner. I'm still trying to get a mouse to work with it here. Uh, to turn it off, and if you turn it off by hitting that button down there in the corner, then it's available elsewhere as a USB C, you know, as a USB C video uh, container. But uh, yeah, interesting. And and I'm trying to. I haven't gotten it. I just plugged it in while the show was going here, so I haven't had time to play with it very much. But I want to maybe try and get it up in VLC so I can get it full screen. Uh, and bring it in off the uh, off the melee, but I can see that sync may be an issue. You know what? Did you have another thought? Yeah, I was going to ask uh, about the sync too for Guy. If you calculated how many frames behind it was, and I had one more thought after that too. Okay, Guy. I haven't calculated the sync, but I did notice I need to install VMix twenty six because they wrote a driver specifically for the. Um, the Insta360 link, and I do have a contact inside. Now we became a reseller for Insta360, so there are, is feedback. I have a direct link inside of the company now, so whatever you guys want done, I can pass it up the chain, and uh, we can get some some word as to what we want. Well, tell nice. us to make it go full screen in the camera control unit, so it can turn off the screen interface and go full screen. And Noah, you wanted to loop back into this? Yeah. Um, so. I- my thought was like we could use this when we do coverage of events. If we take the 360 and a connect, that's seven hundred dollars worth of gear there, plus some sort of internet-based system. If that's streamed out to our platform, that could be a pretty low-cost solution until the DJI uh, Pocket Three comes out or whatever. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, we've covered this a good little bit. So, Douglas, hopefully that gave you a lot of good information on the Insta 360. Let's head on to our next question. From Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California. Chris says, I started tinkering with my new Mac Studio Ultra, and initially the speeds of compressing an Apple compressor are weird. Can we discuss? Chris, you're in there first, so tell us more about your question. Whoops, you're muted. One of, there you, there you go. So I don't like to jump into things too quickly. So I, I set up the computer and I'm just doing some, you know, installing all the software and plugins, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I put, I wanted to do some compression tests, you know, just to see how fast the thing was. And I put what for me is a kind of a typical job on this uh, NVMe memory stick. And may, and this could be the problem. I put 13, uh, like, you know, three to four minute long ProRes files on it. I compressed them on my iMac Pro, which is my daily driver so far. Um, it took about seven minutes to compress these files. I took the... I. Unplugged the drive, plugged it into the Ultra, plugged it into the front port, just for the heck of it. And it took like it same same version of compressor, exact same files, same compression uh, preset. It took five times longer to compress the same files on the same drive with the same preset. Now there is a setting in compressor. This is a little bit Final Cut Tenny. Uh, but uh, you can click it on and it says, you know, do multiple things at once. That was clicked on. I then rebooted the Ultra and it got much faster. Maybe it's like you have to turn this thing on and then reboot. I just jiggled the handle. Um, got much faster, but it was still twice 
It took twice as long as the iMac Pro. Same drive, same patch, same everything. Um, so are you suspicious I, of the I.O. on the NVMe drive that something is blocking I, I, it there? I, one more bit of data, oh, possibly. Okay. Uh, I took the same 13 files, put them on a folder on the desktop, and compressed from the desktop. It took half as long as the iMac Pro. So it could be the I.O., um, it could be this thing, but but again, the same drive on the iMac Pro versus uh, the alt, and I'm pointing at the Ultra over here. The as the iMac Pro and the Ultra, um, the iMac Pro uh, twice as fast. Well, let's see what anybody had. Wonder if anybody had any input. Mitchell, you got your raised hand next. Yeah, Chris, uh, you need more cowbell. It could, it's possible. <laughs> And maybe Courtney actually has a technical answer here. Courtney? Did you try it in a different USB 3 port? Because maybe that USB 3 bus is the same one that you're sharing with video or something else. It's actually Thunderbolt 4, but yes, I did. I tried it in one bus that was totally empty, and then I tried it in another bus that was totally empty. Is uh, that, the thing uh, has three buses on it. Is that NVMe, uh, external NVMe drive support both Thunderbolt and USB 3? Probably not, but but again, because um, it, it it's if it's USB C coming out, it may be switching over to USB three when you plug it into, depending upon what you plug it into. And yeah, I'm gonna I'm it. gonna try another device. Uh, I have a physical problem that I can't actually wire it all the way over to my RAID just because of distance and lack of desk space. But um, yeah, it's it's super interesting. But 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 again. Same device, two different machines. Come on, Alex, give me. Oh, good. Alex, Alex is next. Dive Alex, into this. Can you help us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's the bus, and I think it's the, the dealing. And, and I will say that I have the. I would definitely do it from the back. I would definitely. Uh, do you know what the drive speed is? The native drive speed on that NVMe. Have you tested it? Is like nine hundred or? I I, I yeah. don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. So I take a look at that. Um, the other thing is, is how did you do it? Did you do it right after? Did you take it over to the new machine right after you did it with the old machine? Um, and the reason heat heat in an NVMe. It's a uh, thing. Yeah, I, it will I've slow also down done real it, fast. I've also done <laughs> like it. Yeah, I've also done it after letting it really cool down. But yeah, I thought yeah. about that too. Yeah. Um, the and I will say that the drive, the internal drive, the, the, the hard part to to compare that to is that the internal drive on the ultra is five times faster than that mvme most likely you know so it's five gigs per second and so it is um so it is you know when i want to compress something big or do something big i move it to the internal drive of my and the biggest mistake i mean how big did you get on that ultra how big a drive uh two gigawatts Two gigawatts. <laughs> so <laughs> I bought my, my biggest my biggest regret was that I bought a one terabyte because I usually don't use internal drives and that was the smallest one I could get. If I bought an ultra again, or if I bought a not a ultra but a max again, I would have gotten eight terabytes because it is you throw stuff on there and it's the fastest external drive you can get without taking up all of your thunderbolts is uh, like two and a half gigs a second, and so it's twice as fast as anything else you can do. And when you, especially when you're doing like let's say six six uh, K raw tracks from a Blackmagic camera, that speed becomes super important so what's um, super interesting about that philosophy and i think about this 
because I almost never do that. I almost never move things to the internal drive to do it. That's why I bought a small one. And it's right. it, the only thing that's been flipped over with the with the new with the new um, studios is the fact that I can't do I, I can't be as fast as I can be on the internal. <laughs> I can't like. Hmm. But but when you're when you're looking at the true cost of fast, okay, that's my term. The true cost of fast. You also have to. Uh, uh, take into consideration <clears throat> all the time it takes to transfer. Hey, Greg, all that. Um, <laughs> Greg had his mic open, cleared his throat, and took over the program. Uh, all the time it takes to transfer that job over to the uh, Ultra or the Max or whatever you have, and then back to where you actually need it. And I think, and I don't know that people really think about that. Uh, yeah, I think that I think that I, I guess what I would say there is that I that's that's coffee time. It's not really it's not really work time. That's like that's like I, I'm going to move this. I'm going to move all these piles over. You and, and I have, have had this discussion before in the past. I, this I, is, I mentioned something to you once, and you go, "Wait, well, just do it at the end of the day." I go, "Alex, I'm working all day long." All no, day no, long. but 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 I you know so as someone who used to be a 3D artist that rendered things a lot and renders took a long time, you get used to you pack it. You it's not the just the end of the day, but it's. It's at lunch. It's at this. It's at that. It's at you know like it. And and I will say that moving a lot of stuff over to that drive nowadays. If you have a you know you and I both have a, a, you know these little guys right. I know the guy. You know, little uh, little OWC yeah, boxes yeah. of of happiness. That's what I call it. My box of happiness. That's my lucid cash, by the way. Nowadays. Yeah, oh, nice. That's good. So these little guys transferring this whole drive, you know, into into a into a Mac isn't going to take very long. You know, like it's not going to, you know. And so, um, and that's what I would do is I would pull it off of this, put it onto there, do the work, and put it back onto this. You know, so you know, definitely, you know, trying to. Up you know, be able to, to make that actually happen. And I didn't get a bigger one of those, but anyway, it's a whole other story. You know, you, I will tell you, just keep on the storage, especially now that we get these big cameras, I'm shooting, shooting some stuff next week on 8k and I'm like, Oh, I gotta get more storage. <laughs> so, so yeah. Constant, constant. I don't, constant I don't know. Storage. It should, I guess what I would say is I think it's a bus issue. I think it's a bus or a transfer issue. I think that, um, but it's really hard to measure because the, internal drive on the studio is so fast that it's really hard to measure because it's going to be probably 10 times faster or even 20 times faster than your iMac. So that's the, you know, so of course, so that's a, that's a component. And what were you compressing from and to from Apple ProRes to ProRes to H.264? Yeah. So that, that should, the chips should, you know, absolutely help. I also tried HEVC mm -hmm. just on a Lark. It was about the same. Yeah. Yeah, it's because I've I found that it's stunningly fast on the studio, you know. But I haven't been. That's all I've been compressing on. I don't, I don't use my iMac for that anymore. I just kind of like that because it's a little older. And so um, I will tell you that the studio is considerably faster than a 2017 iMac. <laughs> like I'm just kidding. If you're looking for that, that there's point, been progress. It's it's a lot. I, I use that one now just for I don't know. It's, it's just sitting over there. Wait, you know, I think I need it for the Chrome links that I did <laughs> that I left. I, I got to figure out how to get them out. But outside of that, I don't. My experience has been the same. If you can stay inside the machine, and if you're lucky enough to have ample memory, the internal process is just really optimized, and it's super fast. Yeah. So. Uh, anyway, we've been on this for a good little bit. It was a fun discussion, but let's Thank kick you. on to the next one. Thanks. From Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada, has the panel heard of or have personal experience with CottonCarrier.com products? I had not heard of them until I met someone who worked there and they're Vancouver-based. Looks like really well-made rugged camera harnesses and straps. And Sky's going to help us with this. 
as someone from the Pacific Northwest, yes, that is a consideration for your carrying your DSLR around and keeping it ready, but also having your hands available. So that I've not had personal uh, contact with this, but in again, looking at their great website, it does look like it's very sturdily built for uh, climbing around the the mountains and and the behind the scenes of uh, the trees. And so that's that's my my thought is uh, it looks like a pretty good price point as well if that's what you need so that's the the challenge do you need this to do the climbing it would, Alex, it would hold your dslr yeah i think that the other one is um i think it's called rapid um uh, there's a company that makes ones that look exactly not exactly like these but very close to these that we've used for a decade and i just can't think of the name of the company at the moment but but it starts with rapid. <laughs> so I haven't had to use that for a while as, as I haven't had to climb for a while. So, but, um, but I think that, um, having those, it's pretty addicting to have a, so when we, we used them when we were in Africa and having a, a chest harness with a, with a lock that you can just set your, you set your camera and it just goes click and it's just there. And so you just kind of set it down in front of you and then pull it back out again. It's super convenient, you know, and it looks like that's what one of the things they have. You'll see that camera harness there. And what you do is it's got a slide and at least with the, um, uh, the, the rapids, you, you just drop it, you kind of just slide it in there and it just locks in there and then you just know it's there and then you pull it back out again. And it, we, um, I had a, um, a person I was, you know, um, working with in, in, in Tanzania who had one and he, and I, I got pretty addicted. Addic it's, it's a really useful really useful tool because it's just you're not swinging the big thing you, you're afraid of is it's swinging around you know so it gets caught in things it gets swung around and so having it just locked without that right in front of you is pretty useful and this one does have a strap so that your longer yeah. lens you can clamp it down to your body so it doesn't yeah and for the flail. photographers who cover big events olympics yeah. you seem you often see them in this and they'll be sometimes carrying three dslrs with three separate mm -hmm. lens arrangements and just to be able to grab one bring it up get the shot drop it you don't have to do anything and it just falls back in place that's a tool for a professional working uh courtney has some thoughts yeah you do end up with a lot of shots of your feet though that's true <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to hit the button first all right well well covered let's move on to the next one from Douglas Carmichael asking, when wiring a three-level house, basement, main level upstairs for Ethernet in every room, would it be best to wire every room down to a central rack in the basement, or would an intermediate closet on the main level be easier? Nigel's going to help us out with this. Nigel? So I guess it depends what you're doing in the house, but I can tell you that uh, if we were doing a home automation system, unless it was absolutely crazy, we would wire everything to the central point. We'd want to go through as few hops to get to the main each other point as well there are two two places that might change one if there's a very sophisticated home theater that required its own hub we might build its own uh, separate solution for that or second if there are multiple different outhouses or buildings or things but but typically we wire everything to a single point because then we can do quality of service and it doesn't make it too complicated and it's easier to manage and mitchell hill yeah, I agree with uh, Nigel. Home running is the way to go. And uh, if that intermediate area is in the central part of the house, you'll save a lot on wiring. And Alex? Yeah, I, my, my house has a central server room. <laughs> and I would highly recommend it. Getting everything into one place that you can do all the processing and everything else that you want to do makes it, um, in, it very interesting. For some reason, when Nigel said, though, outhouses, I was just I, I just pictured an outhouse with AV. <laughs> like, there's like... I just was like, that would be great. Anyway, next question. I'm sorry. Next, next question. Yeah. I, 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 I don't want to say Nigel. Yeah. 
I was just going to say, when you build the Lindsay estate, you will find that you <laughs> put separate houses for entertainment and separate houses for the family. I have and a then, whole design for that. I, I yeah. totally get it. I have a whole design for that in my head of like, if I ever, if, if, if everything worked out, it'd be like five or six houses. And I, yeah. You know, I, and that's, I by the way, you would connect them with fiber. So this is a completely different conversation at that point. You're getting into the zone of compounds. Be careful. All right. Let's move on <laughs> to the <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Next question from Paul Praskowski in Gainesville, Florida. Setting up an SDI patch panel and need two dozen 30-foot BNC to BNC cables. What are your favorite sources for both quality and cost-conscious pricing for these sort of cables? Noah, to start. So I would definitely recommend building your own kind of setup. Um, so I have bought these before, Markitech. Um, so you can buy them in a pack of 100. Um, and so you need one on each end. You definitely need, need the right crimper tool to make this work. Um, and you also need to make sure that the uh, cable matches the head because there's two different types. There's a 1504, I believe, and then the 1694. So make sure they match up um, when you buy them. And I, I know Alex is really particular about the ones that he buys as well. But as far as a cost-effective solution, that's going to be your best option long-term for many BNC cables. Courtney? Uh, yeah, if you have the time and uh, the wherewithal to get all the right parts. Making your own is the cheapest way to go. I use a company called um, No Shorts. Uh, it's from Pacific Radio, and they make up custom cables for anyone that needs them. And they do really good work. And I've had them make uh, custom length cables for me and custom the small diameter uh, BNCs. And uh, They have a lot of pre-made cables at Packrat as well, and they will custom make a whole group of cables for you. So I'll put that in the uh, chat. For you. I hope that's their quality promise and not their dress code. Alex. Yeah. So we make a lot of cables um, and I, I, I'm pretty, pretty specific about them. Um, and so uh, the, the ones that we use are the, the, the termination that we use are specifically Neutrik rear twist. And the reason that we use Neutrik rear twist is because we don't ever need a, we, we don't ever need a, a, a trumpeter. You know, the trumpeter is a long piece that has a little piece that you put onto it when it get, when they get too dense. So um, the ones that Noah showed are, are totally valid. They work really well. It's just that if you get them into a dense area, you will not be able to get your fingers in there and pull them out. The rear twist has a, has a flange that comes back and you can go in there and even on a 40 by 40 router, you can stick your hands in and pull them out. And that, you know, and, and no matter how dense they get, the other thing is they can be colored. So I color them. Um, one through 10 with the ret resistor code. <laughs> so across there. And so I, I can look at something on a smaller kit on bigger kits. It gets a little confusing, but on a smaller kit, I can go, Oh, I know that's camera three, just from the, the color of the connector that's, that's on the other end of it. And so I, I really like to have that there. So you can get lots of different colors. Um, and, uh, and they just much, much when you're building these kits and taking them apart and putting them back together, it is a much more pleasurable experience and they're just a little bit more expensive than, than everything else, but worth it. And when you're saving so much money, making the cable, the extra 50 cents or whatever for the, to have the rear twist is worth it. Um, the other thing that we do is the next thing is a, a good crimper. I don't have all the, I don't have all the part numbers in my head. Uh, Coastal Cable makes a motorized, <laughs> we, we use a, um, a motorized uh, wire stripper and you just push it in, push the button and, and it'll cut all three um, depths uh, automatically. You have to calibrate it, but it'll, it'll cut all uh, three depths and you just go push it and go and then you pull it out. And then I use... This is a, um, this is a, they're supposed to be tweezers, but, um, I took one side off and what, what it is, is it's a, it's a silicon, um, 
end. And the reason I do that is because it doesn't, it doesn't cut the metal, you know, on, on, on the, on the band, on the, um, on the outside of it. So that, cause what's going to happen is you're going to cut it and then you're going to need to pull one piece. You're going to have to suss off one piece and I, to get it off, I stick this under it and go and pull it right off. Anyway. So, um, I use that. That's what I use this for. And it's also really good for taking the tea bag out of your tea. But anyway, so, um, but that's what I use it probably more, more frequently for, but when I'm making SDI cables, that's why this sits here. So, um, anyway, so this, this works really well for me. Um, there is a, when you buy the Neutric ones, by the way, or when you buy the, uh, the, the Neutric connectors, there's this little scissor, there's a little thing that comes in the scissor and you can't figure out what it is for a long time until Kevin tells you that, oh, by the way, that's the thing to splay open the shield. <laughs> like you just, you just close it and just go around and the, and the little shield will go, hello, like a little flower. And, um, and so we'll, we'll do a lab sometime in the next little bit of time. I'll, I'll get all the stuff up here and we'll get a close up of it, but that's how we do it. Um, you know, we've made a lot of you know, thousands of cables that way. So it's, it, and um, the motorized one, you can get a little one that you spin with your, your finger, which is, you know, the most common way to do it. If someone sees the coastal cable one and they use it, they, they, they buy one <laughs> because it's about, you know, about four times faster to do it that way. Somehow, somewhere, someone must be yelling, where's my shield splayer? No, I had a yeah. thought. <laughs> it's cool. I didn't know what that was yeah. called. Getting getting the right tools for the job is absolutely necessary. I can't tell you the amount of time and headaches I spent in the beginning trying to do it the cheap way of like, oh, I'll just make this work. I'll get the you know fifteen dollar tool. It's not worth your time. Like if you value your time in any instance, um, make sure you you splurge on the tools. It's worth it if you're going to do it. So the second thought I had was not all BNC cables are the same. There's different. Um, material that make up, there's different shielding that goes into them, and there's different uh, ratings for 3G, 6G, 12G, et cetera. And, and everything is, and, and the rating is typically at length, at a certain length, because everything is 12G at three feet. <laughs> so, so all cables are 12G at three feet. It's when they, is are they 12G at, and, and you have to be careful because we bought, as no one knows, we bought 12G cables at 100 feet, and then they weren't 12G cables. <laughs> they wouldn't carry 12G. So you have to be you have to really test them carefully as well. Courtney. Yeah, and you got to be careful if you're buying cables uh, off of eBay or somewhere. A lot of them are old 50-ohm uh, uh, data cables, uh, and they have different diameter center pins that are slightly smaller than the regular 75-ohm pins. And then you put them in, you know, they look the same as a regular BNC, but you put them into something that's for design where the internal uh, female receiver has been splayed out a little bit and they're intermittent. Mm -hmm. Mitchell? Yeah, Alex, you just brought up a good point. How do you best test the cables to make sure they're good for the job? Um, there's a, you can, obviously there's some testing tools that you can use. So the, the ones that, that we use when we're really building, when we're building on site, uh, we typically use a Fabrix. Um, it's a Fabrix handheld that, that allows us to, and it's a, I mean, it's a $7,000 handheld little thing this big, $7,000. And so when we're building a, a larger kit for ours, we mostly put 12 G through it and uh, wiggle it around a little bit. I mean, I, I, you know, in our, in our office, you know, when you're not, when you don't have access to one of those things is putting 12 G through it, through it and seeing if it's going to say generally, if it's solid and it pushes 12 G through it, it's going to, you know, you generally works after that. And so, so that's the, you know, and so the, um, uh, but, but if you're building something, if we're building for an external client typically we have a, um, a, a rated, you know, we, we rent these, you know, these, these systems so that we can, we can test them and, and those will test every bit of that cable. All right. We've been on this for a while. Let's see what's next. John Folds from Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania has a question. 
I have a Mac Studio that's acting strange. After it sleeps, the cursor is large. When you wake it, cursor moves around, but you can't click anything. A hard reboot fixes the problem. Nobody's raised a hand on this. I have seen this happen before, too. I have not figured out what's doing it. Alex, do you have any wisdom for us here? Yeah, I'd be curious if you're using a um, accessib- any accessibility features. What it sounds like is that accessibility has jumped on somewhere. Um, there's some you have some process in the background or in, you know that's happening that is related to accessibility. So a uh, large cursor is usually a, a pretty tie, you know, um, pretty red flag that accessibility is being used somewhere because that's what it's used for. The only other time is when you spin it, move it, move your mouse really fast, <laughs> it, it will do it. So the other thing that could happen potentially, I don't know exactly how this would happen, but if something's vibrating your table, theoretically your mouse could, it could look like the stu- to the studio that it was moving fast and it would make it bigger um, because it sounds like the cursor's moving around, but you can't click anything. It sounds like you may, oh, uh, so the other thing to look for is do you have anything do you have any wireless like a magic pad or a mouse and are they sitting somewhere with something on top of them somewhere in the somewhere in your room i've had this actual problem now that it comes in my mind i've actually had this problem where i couldn't my mouse was drifting around and it was and it was uh, up and what happened was is i had a magic pad over there and i had set a book on it or something like i had set something on it and it was just constantly you know if i move things around it would just constantly move things in in and out so uh make sure that you don't have a, some bluetooth device that's connected to it that has something just it's it, you know that's the problem with it not being wired is they get kind of piled into something but the battery's still on so um so, so, oh. so i would uh, i would take that i would take a look at that i have that kind of kinetic intermittence must be just drives you nuts yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's doing this noah yeah that's a great hardware solution to try to look at those components for sure uh, i was thinking software wise you might try to create another user just to see if it replicates the problem um, and i know there are some like it's a prmc or some other term that you can use to help reset some settings as well um, within the mac excellent let's move on to the next question from Guy Cochran in Seattle, USA, is there an external drive faster than an internal drive on a MacBook Pro M1? And since Guy asked the question, I'm going to go to him first. Okay. Do you want to he amplify? He the ball, and he runs down the field, and he catches it. So, it's uh, a Cochran. <laughs> the world's Sorry. fastest Thunderbolt raid is from Iodine, and it is 12 uh, one terabyte SSDs and the specs show that it is on par. It's thirty nine fifty for the twelve terabytes. So if you're looking at getting a MacBook and you're going to go to the eight terabytes for twenty two hundred, or if you made the mistake and you just went ahead and got the cheap one, you can add external storage later. And uh, the benchmarks show that it is on par exactly with the internal drive. Wow, so, that's fast. And you can and you can share it. So you can have, it has eight Thunderbolt ports, so you could share it with other people uh, on the set. So they can be editing uh, and sharing that same data too. So take a look. I'll put a link in the chat to this device. That sounds pretty spiffy there. Mitchell, take it away. External drive that's not a RAID, um, probably not faster than the one internal. I think what did they write about 1,200, 1,500 uh, speed-wise. So it would be tough to beat that. Yeah. Uh- Sorry, I'll wait for my turn. No, go ahead. I, the SSDs are really... Yeah, I, I don't think ahead. that's the issue. I, I think that the issue is is that I thought that with this iodine to get that full speed, I thought that you had to use all of those Thunderbolts. Is that correct? 
you um, you can you use two to get the maximum speed so okay, it'll okay yeah two of the ports okay so you, you I, for some reason i had this impression when i said because I, I did make that note i was like if you, if you use up all the ports because when i read it i had the impression that i had to use all of those ports into the into the uh the back of the mac um back of the studio to get the full speed but it's just two that needs you need to do it to get that speed Okay, uh, so break. you don't have to massively parallel connect everything to get it to go max. Yeah, and it's got through throughs anyway, right? So it's it's able to. Um, well, this is a really useful thing. Okay, I just misread it before, so. And we've hit Alex's wallet again. Yeah. Sky, <laughs> Tech, it. speed speed is awesome. And my question, of course, with that much storage, is is heat and and electricity power. I is is that no longer a challenge anymore? Do things, Guy, did do, you see anything on here about heat uh, handling? Well, you, they're not spinning be, drive. They're they're NVMe, so they're pretty oh, yeah. pretty lightweight. And yeah, as far as cost, it, it's bananas to me to have come it from is. these 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 worlds of you know drives costing. We've sold systems that cost way more than this. Uh, this is a forty eight terabyte for seventeen grand. Whoa! Which, I mean, we we used to sell twenty four terabytes that were twenty five grand. So I mean, this stuff's getting cheaper and just faster. So. Uh, something to look and, at if you're playing in that that space. And it oh. comes in space gray at no extra cost. So there you go. Uh, purple. Let's, you got to get purple. Purple. purple that'd like be that. awesome. Yeah, let's move on to the next question. Paul Buchan from Columbus, Ohio, asking, any panelists have experience with in-ear earpieces? There's a link to it. We had talent specifically requesting it. They do seem geared more towards speech versus full-range audio. Curious if anyone has used them. Let's start with Noah. They are definitely not full range audio. I'm wearing a pair right now. Uh, the main advantage you get is just the um, incognito feature, right? So it's pretty low profile. You can barely tell that I'm wearing them unless you look hard enough. Um, and they were something that was recommended um, by the panel on the panel um, for some time now. I think it's still on a recommended list, but they are kind of expensive. Um, and yeah, like we said, it's it's really in the uh, frequencies of speech. And so if I'm playing music in the background or something, I, I really don't want it in these headphones. I, I pretty much just use them exclusively on office hours. And then for my clients as well, I have three pairs. So um, depending on the kits that we send out or what have you, if we want to have somebody with um, headphones or IFB type setup, we will give them that. Nigel? Yeah, uh, same here. Uh, they are very small, if you've never seen. I think they're the same as the Bumblebees. I I, I may be wrong, but I think they're just a different brand. I, uh, I use it all day for my uh, calls that aren't office hours, where I have different things going to different ears. I actually showed this last week as well. The two additional elements I would encourage are the Angry Audio uh, Magnetic disconnect system which allows you not to pull your your head out and then this very complicated system i stole from my kitchen which allows me to connect <laughs> this to here and then sits on my uh, magnetic microphone stand and that way i give myself less chance of uh, hurting my ears i knew i know bumblebee has a new capsule i don't know what the difference between the new one is and i think both Noah and i have the older one which is slightly more expensive Alex, yeah, the I, I don't think that they are actually the same as the Bumblebee, the Bumblebee um, ones. They are similar, but I don't think that they're identical um, in the build. Uh, so I, and I have the Bumblebees over here, and I I use them for low profile uh, things. I, I I tend to get I've gotten kind of addicted to these the ones that a lot of us are using um, these SC sevens or tens SSZ. Tens, um, you know. Anyway, the linsoles, because I can hear more detail than I can through the through the um, 
the bubble bees. But when I really want to be low profile, either the in the in ear or the bubble bees are, are really good. And it's I, I will say that if you're working, you know, I know this will sound crazy, but wearing those as your comms is you know for your comms on site is a bit of a flex and it's and it's a good flex <laughs> like it is it is we mean business like everyone else has the the clear coil that goes down and everything else and people who are in events will notice that you have this tiny little i literally the reason i know that they exist is because i i walked up to someone with them and i said i gotta know where you got those <laughs> you, know, like, you know i gotta I, you know i gotta and whether they're ear heroes or bumblebees or you know these are little t very tiny wires and that person almost you know like he put his hand under his under his uh his jacket when I walked up to him and I was like, Hey, I just got a question. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so they're, they're very popular among secret services. So anyway, um, the, uh, but the wires, uh, it, it's a little bit of a flex. It says that you, you know, you're, you, this is, this is what you do and you should not underestimate like a, a lot of us and people in, in my, in our industry underestimate the subtle flexes that people do to show that they're, they're, they're getting, you know, they're, they're, it's a slightly better system than just what someone handed to them for the show, you know, or, or the thing. And, and it, it, it definitely gets you work. Like I know it sounds crazy, but it, it works. Chris Fenwick. It's also important to under, remember and understand that changing the type of earpiece you're using, um, will have it, um, you'll have to adjust your volume. Okay, so I, I remember the first day, Alex, you popped on the show here wearing those linsoles. You were like, uh, uh, something's wrong. And, and you took them off. And it, it, it was, we were in the last moments before the show. And I think even that day I said, you know, they're a lot more sensitive. You're prob it's probably just a lot louder than you're used to hearing it. It, it, it actually changed the way I built my system. I realized there was a bunch of self-noise that I was creating in my, in, in my present, what I had in my studio that I wasn't noticing when I had the, 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 um, the ear heroes in, I was using ear heroes at the time and I just didn't, I wasn't noticing lots of little, you know, things that were showing up. And, and then when I put the linsoles in, I suddenly heard them. That's why I use them for the show is because I can hear very small things that I'm doing, um, that you could, you might be able to hear in the stream, but I wasn't hearing in my in-ear and that's important. That's why I want something that has a lot more of that detail is to, is to make that actually work. Yeah. And I think even that day I said, just turn it down just a little bit. No, but, but it wasn't, it, it again, I, it, it was fine. The, the issue was, is that it was, and I'm, and by the way, I'm just um, a little inside baseball here. I'm going to try to lower this down a little bit because I've oh, been told, yeah, I, I can't like, I, I turn it uh, now, now we'll see if it, if it works. Yeah, I've overshot a little struggling. Yeah. It's, it's been one of those things that I, um, anyway, sorry about that. Um, the, uh, but I, yeah, it's, it's a, um, uh, it, it wasn't though that I, it was, I was really making noise. That was a problem. <laughs> that was, that was the issue. It wasn't that I was, it was too loud. It was just that I was making noise that I, that shouldn't, that I shouldn't. And if you don't have a feedback loop where you can hear that you're making noise, you can't correct it. So exactly, exactly. So I really like to use these, but, but I will say that when I'm presenting, typically I'll go back to either the, the, bub, the bubble bees is typically what I used the bubble bees or the ear heroes. I'll go back to when I'm doing a like a high-end presentation um, because I don't need to know that now because I use it every day. <laughs> so I know what the system is like. Um, I might set up with it and prep with it, but then I'll swap them just because they look nicer. Noah, you had a last comment? 
Yeah, when when I worked more in the film industry, the Motorola Motorola CP two hundred was like the standard uh, walkie that we all used. Um, and at the time, it used to drive me nuts when you know the AD would be yelling, and then the next person would be talking quietly. And so, um, I actually talked to a manufacturer. We never ended up doing anything with it, but the thought was to add some sort of inline limiter compressor to help normalize the audio. It's it's super important, super crucial. But the um, in ear specifically has an adapter to use with that specific Motorola, even though I haven't ever done it yet. But I think that's what Alex was talking about earlier. Just having good um, ear protection and good communication lines is, is always helpful on sets. Yeah, I use the in-ear as well. And for me, it's a matter of, I love the fact that it's so small and in-ear that if I need to listen to something critically, I can grab my headphones and put them on over the top of them. And even uh, do that if you need comms and program monitor, and they will sound different which I find to be a plus. All right, we've been talking about this a long time, and we've actually got a, quite a few more questions to get through. So let's dive into the next one. From Ronnie Hofsey in Tromsø, Norway, making your own SDI cables using Nutric Rear Twist, what cables is the preferred for long run and patch? Same? Let's start with Alex and go to Courtney. Alex? Yeah, we use Clark cables, and I'm looking, I'm trying to find the exact one that, that we use, but it's a, it's an HD, obviously an Ultra HD uh, cable. We use thin ones. These are, they won't go as far, so that when you say long run, you have to define what long run run does, you know, so we're, we're using thinner ones because we build a lot of kits. And the kits, the issue is, is that the thicker, the thicker SDI cables add weight. So, and we don't, it won't matter. Like three feet will not matter. Two feet won't matter. And so we oftentimes are, are wanting to have thinner cables because it'll literally cut 35, 40 pounds out of a full kit to have the thinner cables. And they're easier to work with, get between them and so on and so forth. And if we want to take them out. So, um, and I don't, ha I don't know if I have any like within arm's length that I can show you, but, but these are, these are, um, a thinner Clark cable that we use. Um, when we go more than about a hundred feet, uh, we typically start shifting gears to fiber. Like I just don't, SDI is capable of with the right cable traveling nine hundred eight or 900 feet. It, it is not. And, but I find that pretty soon after about 75 or hundred feet, I'm trying to put a, a fiber reel in somewhere so that I don't have to think about, about the distance. Courtney, have a quick one. Uh, not too quick, but I use different types of cable depending upon whether that cable is just in a permanent installation or whether it's going to be thrown out, wrapped back, and thrown out, wrapped back constantly from job to job. I usually use uh, Belden cable. They have a 12G SDI, uh, which works well. That or Mogami. Uh, and Canary makes some too in multiple colors, and those work well. And I agree with Alex that the small diameters I use for patch cables and internally running inside of a uh, a rack case uh, because it saves a lot of space and it's easier to patch and move around and see. And they work fine for short runs uh, under five feet or so. Let's move on. Next question. Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. Has anyone done automation between Stream Deck and Loopback? And no one has raised a hand on this one, so I don't know if we have anybody in this particular panel. Alex, you had a thought? Yeah, we haven't done the automation with it, I, I, and I'd be curious to see what automation you would want to do with Loopback. I, I wouldn't use Loopback that way, <laughs> to be honest with you. I wouldn't start shifting things in Loopback. I would probably use get Loopback into something else and make it work. Chris, you have a quick comment? Yeah, I just reached out. Well, reached out. I tweeted an annoying like <laughs> tweet to... Uh, uh, rogue amoeba just last night i think saying uh that i can i personally can think of many ways that i would like to have um 
a stream deck control both loopback and audio hijack. Uh, I could think a lot of different ways, and and it would be an interesting brainstorm to like get a bunch of people together. I'd love to get Felipe in on that conversation. Uh, I can totally think of ways to to uh, make some, especially with the new Stream Deck Plus, with the knobs. Like, come on, there's a natural I, fit there. I still don't think it's just. I, I will say that I think that you're using it in a way it's not designed, and you'll have anomalies <laughs> because Listen, it's not. You're it's, now living. It's my, in your own, it's my computer. It is your computer, but you know you're, you're out there. You're you're pretty far out in, in in the in the hinterlands there, and and uh, there's bears. That's all I'm telling you. Is that there's bears. There's not a lot of people living out there yet. The bears haven't been scared scared off into the back into the. So all right, let's get back from the woods here you, and get to the next question. You, we still have start, a big list. When you start when you start using the apps the way that they're not built, uh, and you just end up with you know things that they they do things that are odd because no one's ever tested that that area. So <laughs> can't we all get just get along? Bears. <laughs> next question up from douglas carmichael are there any training courses or schools for live language interpretation at events my cousin teaches spanish and she might be interested in entering this field i would imagine there must be all sorts of training programs in that alex your thoughts yeah there, well what you're going to end up doing is if you're very fluent and you're able to do it you're going to go to a train you're going to go to an interpretation uh, company um, and tell them that you're, this is something you're interested in doing. Uh, almost everybody that I know that is doing this didn't go to a school for it. They um, they showed some aptitude for it, and then they went to a company that that then did in basically trained them internally to do what they're doing. And it's really like a little bit of a tapping your head and rubbing your belly kind of problem because you just have to listen to things and spit them back out again at a certain language and, and just understanding how those that hardware works. Courtney. And I don't see a lot of future in it if you're looking at it as a career, because AI has made great strides just in the last year with natural language development and understanding and creating perfect English or perfect Spanish. Uh, and so it won't be long before all the translators are plugged into AI and can do a pretty decent translation job, as opposed to the Chinese English translation instruction manuals we get with all of our equipment. I think it. I think you got, it just depends on how how long you want to do it. But you probably got a solid three to five years. You know that they'll still want humans, and then after that, you're you're probably spot on. And I would suspect they'll also maybe uh, at high level want interpretation of the tone of the person who said it. You know, were they upset oh, that, or were they angry or whatever? So there'll probably always be a high end of people interpreting that. That solve is actually going to be happening much faster than than the the text solve. They already have the the. Uh, the AI tools for reproducing someone's voice and reproducing their emotion is something that's already done. I mean, it's like that's a deep, deep fake stuff is already solving that has already solved that problem. It's it's really just getting the text right. All right, next question from Ronnie Hofsey and Trumsu, Norway. My kit for boardroom based on gooseneck going into an auto mix need to be very compact since travel with lots of boxes is not fun. Price is not that important, but need to be mobile and very compact. Uh, wireless or cable, up to 16 people. Noah Sargent. So if you're hitting big cities, uh, it's definitely worth considering going wired. That's going to be your most dependable system overall. But both Sure and Sennheiser have amazing um, high-end systems. I will say specifically around the compact size uh, thought, um, just do a custom case, like have a layout with foam that's custom cut to your specific needs because you'll be able to fit a lot more in a smaller space with that in mind. Um, and yeah, there there are a few um, 
like digital technologies, which is like the 2.4 gigahertz and above ranges that might fit your need. But there's traditional um, RF frequencies that that might be better as well. And honestly, I would probably trust those more depending on the uh, if you're going into business centers or if you're going into, um, you know, an area with a lot of um, band, you know, Wi-Fi, you know, congestion. Alex? The microflexes from Sure work exceptionally well in this environment. Just, they just, you, you, I mean, for a quick setup, small, wireless, just set them down, walk away. Um, they are built for this and they do it exceptionally well. Nice. And Noah, you had a last thought? Yeah, the the neck on the gooseneck, um, you're going to be tempted to pick the shortest one, the six inch one. Try not it. to. Don't do it. <laughs> Get that yeah, mic exactly. as close as you can to the source as possible. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on to the next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, can Bo talk about what Guy talked about yesterday and give us a tour of the Seahawks stadium behind the scenes? What is Bo's day going to be like on game day today? We'll get to that in a second. But if you weren't here yesterday, uh, Guy took us on an amazing tour of the Seahawks stadium in, in uh, preparation for tonight's big game. And uh, it was fascinating. Boy, when you have an unlimited budget and you're working at NFL level uh, facilities, it's amazing what you can get in there. Guy, do you want to describe more of that? Yeah, I wish Bo was here, but of course he's a busy boy today. Uh, SVG did do a write-up on the truck, so there is a lot of information in here about how they're doing 4K HDR and how many streams are pumping out and how they're doing 100 gig connections. So uh, I'll put a link to this in the chat, but I'd imagine that the stuff that he does is a, a lot of... Uh, um, augmented reality using the Ross Voyager software. So behind the scenes and uh, after hours, we did a little tour with the guys. And one of them that did a second hour, Chris Brown was on. So I'd say uh, if you haven't watched that episode, take a look at how they layer in these graphics because they've done them not just for the NFL, but for the Olympics uh, for the last four years. So Bo's worked on the Olympics for four years. But yeah, game day is a uh, sounds like a pretty stressful, hectic day. I mean, there's a there's a lot going on. And it, it's strange to think that they have that big old truck and that they'll only air about 90 seconds worth of uh, graphics for that show. So it's it's pretty impressive how much stuff they roll out. They'll, they'll do more in the pre-show and the post-show. But yeah, be, be on the lookout for tonight's game and uh, their work. Very nice. It was fun to see all of that. Let's go on to the next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, asking, going traveling for the holidays, what are your must-takes for traveling for, for the uh, holidays? Not camera, mic, or lights, but just driving many hours. Uh, Tom Ferguson. Well, the very first thing I do is I consult with my wife and find out what audiobooks do we need to catch up on. Because spending all those hours in the car, that's a good way to pass them by. I resemble that remark. Jesse Kessler's next. I got a spindle of about a hundred CDs from when CD burners were first a thing through now. And I just grabbed that and that usually takes us through uh, Los Angeles to Pennsylvania. Okay. Alex. Um, you know, uh, Apple Music is a really useful one. What my family does is there's four of us that typically are, are driving around and we literally pass the phone around and everybody picks a track. And the track is like, if you like the last track, then put the track, but, but, you know, you'll like this track. And that's the challenge. And what happens is, is that the parents learn more new songs and the kids learn more old songs. <laughs> and, 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 your, and your tastes slowly meld together as, as you kind of figure it out. But that's probably the most important thing, that along with uh, a big pile of fruit and jerky. You know, those are the things that are usually sitting in the, in, in, the, uh, in the car and some water. You know, those are things that are pretty, pretty standard. Courtney. 
Uh, I don't listen to music anymore in the car for long drives because it puts me to sleep. And um, so I find listening to podcasts, especially podcasts that you disagree with or that you hate, because it gets you mad and that will keep you awake yelling at the radio. It's really true. So good. Emotional management on the highway. Excellent. Nigel. So if you're into podcasts, you've never found the BBC's Desert Island Discs. It's been going for about 60 years. Everybody that was anybody has done it. Uh, that's a, a fun uh, listen. I travel maybe every other week, and I, I will tell you the most important thing I carry with me is my pillow. There you go. Chris Fenwick. So, Mr. Widener, uh, as as you may know, but I haven't really made this completely. Well, I sort of have made it public. I am now the um, the John Madden of corporate video. I've decided I I am not going to fly anymore. I'm done. I'm done with the airports. I'm done with TSA. You can't pay me enough. I just turned down a job in Hawaii because uh, the bridge isn't done yet. Um, I have found. I just did a job in Denver. It was you know thirty two hundred mile round trip uh, with a little a couple little side trips. Uh, went through the Rockies. It was great. Loved it. I had a great time. I will tell you. I really enjoy driving when I have Zoom available. Um, I spend a lot of time with my friends chatting. It's great. Uh, there's many times I was like, Preto, where's the nearest gas station? He's like, kick, 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 kick. third exit, there's a Mavericks. Thanks. You know, it, it's, it's really fun to have. And it's made me think that I, I have like some really interesting ideas of a whole Zoom setup I want to set up in the truck to leave, um, to leave there. Nice. Mitchell iPod, lots of uh, 80s music. Um, and a strange thing, uh, some songs that I've picked and curated on my playlist uh, require me to put the windows up or turn it down because I'm afraid people get the wrong idea about me. <laughs> Never happened. Sky. Traveling with children was fun from Los Angeles to Kansas, taking the 12 days of Christmas and adding your own travel things that you, you see along the road into the song, making it up. It's silly but it's it's a, a moment that you've created uh in a, in a confined space with your family alex back in the one thing that for flying that i've that i had I flew back to pennsylvania and i've kind of felt like i perfected the system of i've got one of those neck things that you put on you know, put behind around your neck and then i've got this little thing that goes over your eyes that has a hole that has like gaps so that your your eyes don't push up against it and then I have my my AirPod Maxes, and I find that if I just put all of that on, it becomes I become like a completely in, a, in an area of black, listening to music, it like just just it's just like a complete. And I put the head, headphones on; they have air, air canceling. I can I can almost not hear the engines at all. I can hear every little bit of it. And for six hours, you just sit in this kind of catatonic state that is completely disconnected from everything that's there. It's awesome. Nice and guy, wrap us up. Yeah, AirPod Pro Maxes and then the 12.9 inch uh, iPad with the keyboard with the cellular so you can dial in anywhere. Lovely. All right. We've reached the top of the hour and everybody has been excited for this topic today. That new camera from Sony that everybody has been chatting about on the web and every place else. And we are incredibly fortunate today to have three uh, longtime friends of the show who are here on the panel who actually have hands-on experience with these. So uh, thank you, Greg Gibson, Noah Sargent, and Chuck Wojcik, who are here in the panel today and are going to help us go through this. And I think uh, the best thing to do is let me just start. I'm going to do them in that order in names. And if each one of you wants to take a minute or two and tell us your first impressions uh and then we'll dive in we i know we have a lot of questions um that are going to probably come in about this because it is being talked about so much but greg why don't you start us off and give us an overview of what this is and uh why it's so important well thanks bill um so 
we, we, uh, Chuck and Noah and I, uh, have communicated a little bit. We really haven't coordinated what we're going to talk about here. So I don't really know what, uh, Noah's going to do. I do know a little bit about what Chuck's going to do because we're, Chuck was the first one I knew to have this camera. And so he and I jumped on a Zoom about a week or so ago and, He's got that super cool studio down there, Blue Studio, and he's going to show you guys some really like cool uses of this camera. But um, I come from the Alpha camera world, so the Sony Alpha cameras. Um, I have been using those for a long time, and I've been doing a lot of like three, four, or five camera shoots. But a lot of time, I do a lot of stuff by myself, and so a lot of times I'm just stuck having to use those cameras as static cameras. And I can't tell you how many times I have wished that, oh, man, I wish I could just change the exposure on this camera over here on the left, or I wish I could just zoom this camera in over here on the right a little bit without having to physically get up from my switch and go over and do that. And so I ended up buying, I bought a set of uh, Canon CRN 500 PTZ cameras, which is actually like what you see me on right now. So I know we're here to talk about uh, the Sony FR7. But right now I am on a CRN 500 Canon, which is actually in and of itself is actually a really nice camera. It's a one inch sensor camera. It's about uh, $5,500, $6,000. Uh, and it works really, really well as far as PTZs goes. It's probably right up there with the uh, $10,000 Canon or uh, Panasonic UE150. Maybe just a slight smidge down, but um, performance wise, it's a really, really good camera. And then right after I got these, Sony's came out and announced this new FR7 camera. And if I had sat down and actually written out some specs of the camera that I wanted, it's this is pretty doggone close to what I would have asked for. So basically, what is it? It is a um, it is a full frame sensor camera. Um, it's basically an FX6 back. So it's got the internals of a Sony FX6. It has the same sensor as the uh, A7S3 or the FX3. So the high ISO performance is really nice. And the other cool thing about it is, is you can use pretty much any E-mount lens that Sony makes with it. So um, anything from like a 14.18 all the way up to um, a 600 F4. <clears throat> now, um, Kind of the downside of it is, is that, well, like right now, Sony, the longest lens that Sony makes or the only power zoom that Sony makes is the 28 to 135 PZ lens, which is a, it's a nice lens, but it is an older lens in the Sony lineup. Um, and, you know, lens reach is going to be a little bit of an issue as far as like the power zooms go. But um, I've used this thing for, I've used it on two events now. Um, it is pretty amazing. and. Um, what I'm going to do, I just want to go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and switch over. And I want to do it this way because how many times in your life do you get to use the, the phrase, uh, I'm going to probably show you something that you've never seen before. And so right now, I'm going to show you guys something that you've probably never seen before um, that is really cool. And so let me just little drum roll, please. And so now I am on an oh. FR7. And that is a 50 millimeter f1.2 lens. Now, ideally, I wouldn't frame myself up this way, but I'm going to show you another thing that is going to sort of address that lens reach issue that I talked about. So I'm on a 50 millimeter f1.2 prime lens right now. So Sony has this um, thing called clear image zoom. So what I am going to do is I'm going to go into my controller right now, and I am now going to zoom this lens to X. So now I am at f1.2 at about roughly equivalent of 100 millimeters. Uh, and I can tell you that's, 
the fact that I can zoom a 51.2 lens just blows me away. Now, I'm going to show you one other thing. I am going to zoom back out for a second. And I'm going to go in here and I'm going to turn my HDMI overlay back on. So now you should be seeing, yeah, so now you can see the overlay on top of me. So you see on my eye now that the camera is doing eye autofocus tracking on my eyeball. And even when I zoom that in, it's still doing that tracking. And you can see how that thing just follows me around. So I just have to tell you the quality, the sharpness, and just the selective focus that you can use on this camera. It just is revolutionary. Uh, it's wow. truly amazing. And, that that um, bokeh difference in the background was truly amazing. I mean, it just jumps off the screen. Um, yeah. Let's 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 dive in. Have Noah tell us a few things, and then we'll move down to Chuck. As it looks, sounds like Chuck has a, a bigger presentation involved. So, Noah, real quickly, what are your initial impressions? Yeah, it's been great so far. And yeah, like Greg just pointed out, that's with a prime lens. Like you don't often get to have that extra zoom on a prime, and so it's it's two um, x and HD, and then one point five x and four K, um, and that's actually similar to. Um, my FS5, which I have um, between my church and my projects, um, I have 11 of these <laughs> FS5s. Um, and they've been a great workhorse 4K camera, but I've been waiting for the upgrade to this, which is kind of what the FR7 is going to be. Um, and so in my setup, I have actually a couple cameras. Um, the one behind me has the 28 to 135, uh, which Greg just mentioned. And then I also have uh, my close up, my version of the close up, which is right here. It's going to be a Rokinon uh, 1.4, and this is a 35. It's actually pretty close to me, about an arm's length away. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't have as much of a demo. Um, I, I do have some questions of my own, but I, what I can offer, the best thing I can offer is my perspective of a small business owner who multi-cams uh, for a living <laughs> um, and what I'm going to be using it for and moving towards um, as far as that goes. So um, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll have some good stuff. And um, even if I'm not... Um, you know, the primary voice, I would love to hear from Chuck and Greg, because they've already had firsthand uh, real world experience where I've just been playing in the home studio. Enough anticipation. Chuck, tell us your impressions. Dive in, dude. Well, as uh, some of you know, I'm here in Blue Melnick's studio in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. So I uh, am the operator and stage manager here. So nice to see you all. I kind of moved to the East Coast and I haven't been able to join office hours for a while. So it's great to see everybody. We've noticed and we've missed you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so I'm here. I wanted to join today. First, I'm on our Panasonic UE150 right now because I wanted to do the dramatic reveal, but Greg beat me to it. So let me just show <laughs> you a similar shot from the Panasonic UE150, not a slouch of a camera. We've used this in the past year and a half in our studios as our primary cameras. Uh, so now let me go to the Sony. And this is the Sony. And one of the first things you may have seen was just how much more separation I got from that back LED wall. Now, that is an LED wall behind me. Um, it is a 1.5 millimeter. And let me do this. Uh, who changed my settings? So I'm a little bit at a disadvantage from these guys because I'm actually inside the studio and normally I'm in the back operating. So uh, on my right here is the Panasonic and on my left is the Sony. And you, and you can see a little bit just the difference 
Uh, and the Chuck, Christmas, is that making a huge difference in the moray issues that you have with the huge LED wall? difference? Huge an, difference. An amazing difference. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to demonstrate one more thing here real quick um, because we do virtual events in our studio. And one of the things that we like to do, I'm just going to pop these up here real quick, is uh, we like to put the audience behind me. And with this camera, I don't have to worry too much. Uh, it, it's a really pleasing shot. I don't have super crisp uh, people behind me. I don't have to worry about eye tracking, picking them up too much unless my eyes get covered. And let's see if it'll do it. I did it the other day in a demo, but this might be too close. Um, but one of the problems we were having, so my studio here, we don't have an a camera operator in studio. These are PTZs, but to make things even more challenging, we actually have cameras mounted on rails and we use the Mark Roberts motion control system to track our most of our talent. Now, we're not usually shooting our events quite this close. Uh, most of the time, it will be a little bit wider. Let me see if I can get to that preset here. So most of the time, we'll be out maybe not quite this wide. Um, right around here. And with this Sony, I'm going to stand up. Is that the 28 to 135? or This is the 28 to 135, yeah. Now, one of the things I noticed, guys, is with clear zoom, I actually had to turn clear zoom off. And one of the problems with clear zoom is when it was on, my PTZ would not save any presets. I could not save and recall presets when clear zoom was on. I'm currently talking with Sony about that. Greg, I think you were mentioning we're talking to them about that at the same time. Uh, but that was one of the things that I couldn't I couldn't quite reconcile. I actually don't even have the Sony controller yet. And one of the things I wanted to demo today was that I have never seen a more comp uh, just capable web interface uh, for a camera as I have with this one. I was demonstrating for Greg the other day, and of course it logged me out, um, how with just a thumb on an iPad, I could do smooth movements of the camera. And let me demonstrate that. So I have the the software here. Now this is zoomed in, but if you've ever tried Canons or even PTZ Optics or anything other from the web interface, I think with NDI PTZ tools, you can get some smooth movements. But I was just blown away as a web app, what I was able to do for movement on this. Now, I don't plan on doing this most of the time. We will have the controller. And honestly, we have a USB controller for our Mark Roberts motion control. Let me get rid of those faces behind me. Um, so for the most part, we were looking for something that would give us a little better separation from the back wall, a little bit more depth, and more of a cinema look for our virtual events. And uh, Blue ordered these. They came in while he was on the road. So I got to set them up and test them and play with them. And so here we are. Uh, I called Greg and said, you got you to gotta see this, man. It's crazy. That's so, really impressive. Uh, yeah, we're super impressed. And I think this solves a lot of our problems. Absolutely. I can see why everybody's been so excited about this new technology coming in. Alex, you had some thoughts here? Yeah. And I <clears throat> Sorry about that. The... Um one of the things that I think keeps coming up is, oh, the lenses aren't long enough, the lenses aren't long enough. And I think that, you know, 
we're moving away. I mean, I was just talking to someone yesterday about it and the, the fact that they can't get people to come back to events. <laughs> they keep on saying they're going to come back and then they just aren't coming back at the same numbers. And so they're all rethinking how that looks. And I still think we're moving more and more towards a studio environment. And as we move towards that studio environment, um, you know, I think that we are going to see, you know, the, the, the length of that lens doesn't matter as much because we're not going to be putting these cameras in the back. <laughs> you know, I think that what you see with what, the way Chuck is uh, showing them, that is the future. You know, the future is that we're going to be putting them in small spaces. Um, they're going to look great. Now, and if and again, the advantage of a PTZ, because we've done this a lot, is we put the PTZs in the front because they're small. They're not an operator. There's not as many seat kills. You know, we just basically, you know, just stick them up there, and that's what we're going to actually look at. Or the, the big thing with PTZs as well is we can hang them from the ceiling. You know, now, depending on what how the pins work and how much vibration you get and everything else, but oftentimes you can hang them hang them from the ceiling if you're going to get into a big stage and get them closer. And so those throws don't, I don't think, matter as much. I, th I think that we should manage our expectations of expecting really long lenses on that because it puts an incredible amount of weight on the motor. So you're probably not going to get much longer lenses than we have now. You know, you might get to 200 millimeter or something like that. But I don't think, again, <clears throat> we want to think about where these are useful. I don't think we need a, um, a 20X lens. And I don't, I think that there's, you can use those and we do those when we think about hybrids. But as hybrids fade away, which will be, you know, for the next three to five years, they'll just completely fade out of existence. Um, you will end up in, uh, you know, a digital first environment and these cameras are built for this, you know, and if you're also, if you want to be super competitive, I was, was going to say earlier, if, if, if you hear that, that flame going all through the entire thing here, it's everybody's wallets, wallets are smoking, catching fire because it's just, it is the ultimate flex for, you know, like Greg, I mean, Greg specifically in a unified and then the, the shot that we saw with Noah and the, and the one with, with Chuck, all of those, I mean, you just see this marked change in quality of your camera. And if you're going to be a public speaker, if you're going to be on a show, this is the camera um, that you're going to want to, you know, you, you, you want to have that full frame. And the problem with full frame and the problem with that really short depth of field is usually the focus. And I haven't been able to test the FR7, but I was able to test the FX6. And we kind of, I challenged it a lot to fall out of focus and it just doesn't. <laughs> like it just, it, you know, it just keeps, you know, for a second, if you're moving a lot, it'll it'll fall out. But in general, it will just find its way there really, really fast, you know. And so then you feel comfortable shortening that depth of field and really playing with it because you can. You know, you're not worried about being out of focus. And I just think that it's, um, these cameras are, I think we're going to see a lot of studios building these cameras in. And I think that the entire PTZ uh, ecosystem has been kind of upended, you know, you know, because, you, you know, it, and, and because even the Canon being less month, you know, half the price, man, that's a big jump <laughs> between the two. So anyone, and when you build an installation that's a half million dollars, the difference between 5000 and $10,000 for the cameras oftentimes isn't the biggest thing that you're doing, especially when you're looking at five years of use and, and, and amortizing that over every day. And so I think that we're going to see, I mean, I think these, these cameras are just dramatic, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the, the camera that I'm the most excited about, even though I haven't used it yet, I'm the most excited about, and we're looking at using them for events next year and potentially getting four of them and then one FX6 so that we can do handheld for things that we can't, that we have to follow along with. And then 
four other ones that will do that, um, or we'll just rent Noah's. <laughs> Noah, your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, so anyway. <laughs> well, Alex just, uh, I don't know how he read my playbook, but I'm li- literally going to have four of these in an FX6. Like, that's what I'm moving to, because well, I want all the same sensor and all, yeah. all the cameras, and then the lower tier will be the FS5s for the clients who don't want to spend the money on the higher-end stuff. But there is something that's really bothered me, um, and Alex has already spoken to this a little bit, but there's kind of this false impression of like, oh, I need this crazy zoom ratio or, oh, I need this crazy long lens. Um, I want I want to just spend like two minutes here and really dive into what this looks like, um, and I, I can show this by example too. So I'm going to pull up my shot on here. I'm going to leave the display up. Um, and so this is the 28 to 135. It's a 6X lens. And so on a typical PTZ, you usually have a 20X or a 30X, right? And so what that means is your widest shot to your closest shot, you have um, a range, right? So six times zoom or 20 times zoom. So I'm going to go ahead and start zooming in slowly, hopefully. And by the way, I'm doing this live. um, So bear with me here if I miss anything up. So you'll see in the top left corner, there's the zoom number. So it's 80 right now, it's going to be 90. Okay, so now it's going into the double mode. So now it's a 1.4, 1.5. It's going to 2x. And so that's that clear image zoom um, that's adding that extra um, zoom as well. And so it's really not just a 6 to 1 or a 6x, it's a 12x because of that doubler. And not only that, if you look at the menu, um, I'm going to hit this um, button here. If I could remember, I might have to do it on my computer. But basically, I can turn in a crop mode to go to. Um, Super 35. So there we go. So we're going from a full frame. If we needed to, we could crop into the Super 35 as well. And so with that crop, you're actually getting close to like an 18x, 18 to 1. So it's a pretty pretty substantial zoom range, even with the 28 to 135. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, as far as like comparing to like a bird dog or um, a Panasonic, like you almost have the same amount of range, but the crazy thing is it's a full frame lens. So the depth of field and the picture quality is just phenomenal compared to the other. So I just wanted to show that off because I know that's something that people are concerned about, but to me, um, it's a non-issue. Greg. Yeah. I I wanted to jump in on that too, because um, this where the clear image zoom piece of it really does come into play. So, you know, as I said earlier, you can put any E-mount lens on this camera. So you could put a 14.18 on it. You could put a 600 f4 on it. Um, the maximum lens, I think, the longest lens that you can put on it and get pan and tilt with the camera is the 70 to 200. So if you've got a 100 to 400, a 200 to 600, a 400.28 or 600 f4 lens, you can use those on the camera, but you have to lock the head down so it just becomes a fixed. Uh, like a like a f- camera that's fixed on a tripod and that you cannot robotically pan and tilt it. Um, with a 70 to 200, you can put a 2x teleconverter on that lens, right? So um, that gives you effectively a 400 millimeter lens. And as Noah was just saying, you can, it, as long as you're not recording in the camera. So I haven't tested this with uh, with the FR7. I know with the alpha cameras, if you are recording in the camera, you cannot pop in and out of Super 35 mode. So if you're not recording in the camera, you can get another 50% lens reach just by popping that into um, Super 35 mode. So if you do that, um, so you got a 400 millimeter lens and now you're going to get another 50%. So that's another 200 millimeter millimeters. So now you've got effectively a 600 millimeter lens. And now if you add in a 2X um, clear image zoom, now you've got effectively a 600 to 1200 
um, I think my math is right, a 600 to 1200 zoom lens with clear image. So I think the lens reach thing is a little bit, you know, overblown, but it is going to be it, like being able to use the uh, clear image is really crucial for that piece of it. And then as Chuck said, the downside right now of using clear image zoom is that you can't create any presets. So I guess the software, when it gets into the clear image piece of it, software can't access it. Um, it is uh, on Sony's radar. I did talk to somebody at Sony uh, earlier this week, and that was one of the things that that I brought up with them. And um, they're they're aware of it, and uh, I think they're going to address it eventually. And there's just a whole, I think, difference in thinking now. I mean, it used to be if you wanted, you needed those long lenses because you had a camera operator, maybe a spider pot or some kind of position mid-audience. You had to throw from the end of the world up to a stage to get a, an even head and shoulders shot. And now these things are so small and so light that there's got to be a way to move the physical rig way closer, not impede your audience. And so you're not going to need that incredible monster zoom to make an effective shot. So it just seems like the game is changing a little bit. Noah, your thoughts? Well, well go ahead, Greg, respond to it. No, I was just going to say, because I, Alex was spot on and Alex and I have talked a little bit about this and I don't know that I've heard it discussed um, in the show all that much. Um, but really in thinking about these cameras, you need to sort of, with certain clients, I think you can take the studio approach. So if you've got clients who are, who, whose events are largely virtual, so you, Typically, like maybe you've got a smaller in-person audience and you've got a much larger virtual audience where really, <clears throat> you know, you, you need to be able to, where, where the picture for those people should be more important than the people in the room. So you need to take sort of like a talk show approach. So like the Tonight Show or Saturday Night Live or Oprah or the Ellen Show where you've got a small studio audience, but yet there is a much bigger audience out in TV land. And so you need to, so I've tried to go to some of my clients um, with that idea. So let's, instead of putting the cameras in the back of the room, let's put the cameras in the front of the room and let's give the larger virtual audience the, the um, you know, the benefit of having, you know, the better experience. And so I did that um, recently. I got, I, it, if we can, I've got a few little clips that I can show here from some stuff that I shot earlier this week, and I'm just going to scrub through a little bit of it. But <clears throat> this is just kind of a side shot. I, I had a, a bit event that was basically um, sort of a bunch of one-on-one, -on -one, several one-on-one -on -one interviews. So this is a FR7 from the side, and I'm going to just like jump up here. Um, where did I want it to go? Like. Like right in here, this is clear image zoom. This is the 135 on clear image zoom racked all the way in. You can just see like the picture quality there is just super sharp. And and the thing when you're looking to, at this is just how much more important the video feels when you have that shorter depth of field. It feels yeah. more, it has more gravitas. It has more uh, impact. And that is the thing that, because we're naturally used to that in film, like this is an important thing. And so that's why these larger sensors are going to make such a big difference for this kind of show. Yeah. And then just to, they cut to well, so well together, you know, from one side to the other. Uh, I got another little clip here, I think that I want to show. Um, yeah. Greg sent me those clips and I could not believe that that was a setup that someone brought in portable for an event that looked like a broadcast right. studio produced event. And I was blown away by what he was able to accomplish with it. And you're right, Alex, it just has that important feel. It looks like it's 
produced. It looks broadcast. It doesn't look like broadcast, a quick setup yes. in a in a hotel room. Noah, did you have another thought there? So many thoughts. <laughs> Today's the best <laughs> day ever. Oh my gosh. No. Um, no, there's I, three on this shoot. Sorry, Noah. There's three FR sevens on this. So there's a head on. There's two two side cameras, and then I my static wide shot was an FX three camera, and they all just really mixed so well together. Yeah, I was going to say so specifically around the lens, the 28 to 135. There's also an 18 to 110, which is kind of like the second gen of that same lens. Um, and I own a bunch of both of those lenses. So it's an F4 constant across the range. So whether you're at the 28 or the 135, that F stop is continuous, um, which is it's kind of a good thing, though, because for live events, um, you know, you do want that shallow depth of focus, but you still want to retain a sharp image. Um, I will say that moving the camera closer to your subject um, helps with the ratio between um, the camera distance to the subject and the subject to the background, right? So that those ratios um, or those focal planes um, are what allow that depth of field to happen um, along with the aperture and other parts of the lens. So really what it comes down to are the physics of what we're doing um, with a larger sensor it's just better. So like from a physics first principle perspective, the larger the sensor, um, the better in low light, but the better depth of field. And all of these things add up to a better picture quality overall. Yeah, in a studio setting, you should be able to control your light. And that's the point of being in a studio is to bring in more light if you need uh, a different f-stop. Alex, you have wonder, thoughts? Yeah. Bill, Bill, if I could just real quick, yeah, just uh, on, on this little video clip here I'm showing here, I just wanted to show this cut. So this is a full, <clears throat> fully racked 135 at at full clear image zoom. And then you're going to see it's going to cut to a side shot here in just a second, I hope. And <clears throat> let me just I'm gonna help it a little bit, but there's my side shot. So now I'm focused on the same woman. And you're going to notice as she's talking, she's going to turn her head to her with the back of her head to the camera. And you're gonna, the focus never wavers here. So the focus just stays locked on here. So it's not being fooled by the fact that her eye wasn't a part of the shot. Right. Trying right. to so seek for something else. Right, so she could fully turn her head away from the camera, and and the camera just kept the focus the whole time. Alex, you had a comment? Yeah, it, it, just that, that the um, the other thing that these do is they tend to make those studios feel a lot bigger. It's when, when we moved to Super Thirty Five, your studio feels bigger. You you can get away with a lot, you know, more when that short depth of field means that lots of imperfections. A lot of why these studios, there's a lot of them in DC, feel very. Uh, a lot of studios feel very uh, um, chintzy is because they're too much in focus <laughs> with, the, with the broadcast, two thirds inch broadcast cameras. When you knock them out of focus, you can have something that doesn't look nearly as good, look much better just because it's a softer depth of field. And, and again, I would say that, you know, what we're moving away from is trying to having anybody in the audience, unless they're paying a lot of money to be there. Like the reason that the only reason to put somebody in the audience is because they have money and they're paying lots of money to, to be, to be in that studio. And that's the only, if they're paying off the production by being there, they're $1,500 a seat, $2,000 a seat, $1,000 a seat. We put them in there. We will not put them in to, um, as filler to give them, give the, uh, the speaker somewhere to look because that's the worst reason to put them in there because we don't want them looking at the audience. We want them looking at the online audience. We want them looking right into that camera. And so unless someone's dropping some serious coin, we don't want them anywhere. You know, we don't want them the more like what you saw with Chuck. We don't want them to see anybody in front of them other than those cameras, unless they're, unless it's a lot of money that's rolling in with them. We've and, obviously, and Alex, if I could, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Greg. Yeah. Sorry, Bill. Alex, to follow along with that, too, um, I think the fact that if by getting the cameras closer, 
It is yeah. that constant reminder to the people who are on the panel, who are on the stage speaking, that they're speaking to a broader audience than just in the room. So a lot of times, because the cameras are in the back, they're out of sight, they're out of mind. So you put the cameras more forward. It it, it just reinforces the to the um the people in the program that they're speaking to more than just the people in the room. When I when I started doing streaming, there were three hundred people watching and fifteen thousand people in the room. But we're past that now. There's now you know we're now going down in the size of the rooms and way up on the size of the online. And that's the where it should go. That's the natural effect. But eventually, there's a reason broadcast studios look like broadcast studios because the the audience causes a lot of trouble. <laughs> it just it just it, it limits your your camera views and it limits your you know it it ruins your sound and, and it ruins your eye lines and. So, you know, we'll, we'll slowly, I think, and again, these cameras are going to make a lot of that really approachable. So why am I not surprised that we have a ton of questions coming in from everybody out there? So let's dive into them. Uh, Mitch, what have we got? And first one in for the second hour, Sean Johnson from New York asked, can the FR7 output 1080i over SDI? I do projects for traditional broadcast news, and it would be great to have this capability to more seamlessly integrate into that look and workflow. Noah. Yes, it can. So I'm going to go ahead and bring up my display here. And so this is the live camera um, and the feed you see here. So we'll go into settings. We'll come down to monitoring and we'll go to output display. Um, I'm sorry, output format. And you can switch this here. Um, there is a 1080i setting um, in the menu here. Nice. All right. Uh, next question. And it's from Noah Sargent in Fullerton, California. And right here on our panel, the FR7 has a shockless white setting under white balance. I'm assuming that it's for auto white balance. Have they renamed auto white balance in this? Does anybody know? I guess, uh, Alex. Yeah, my guess is, is that it, it it's not it's going to try not to peak the white. You know, like that's the I bet you that that setting has something to do with it's not going to overdrive the white. Um, so what? And I do not know this, but I know that we have other cameras or other settings that look that sound similar to that. And what it does is it it softens the knee at the white. And so the problem you get into, especially when you're dealing with people who wear white shirts, which we do everything we can to get, keep them from doing is that if you have a standard linear 709 curve, or, or not, 709 is not technically stand, uh, linear, but anyway, but the if you have a 709 and it just keeps going straight up, the problem you get into is that the whites will go really white and they'll literally stop, they'll lose detail because they're peaking. If you can increase that knee at the top just a little bit, it'll, it'll hold on to some of those, uh, some of those whites at the top. And that's, that's gonna be my guess. It's a complete guess, but from other things that we've done that are similar to that. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. No, no worries. Screen I just wanted to show the menu and I think you guys can see it on my screen here, but, um, so we have our white balance and by the way, this is not just the standard, like 5,500 level. Like you can go in here and dial these into, you know, 5526 or something specific if you wanted to. But what I wanted to show or talk about what Alex was just talking about is on the secondary menu, the white setting, the shockless white. And so that's kind of what I was curious about if anybody heard it before. But um, yeah, I, thanks. So, I, you know, in, in I, I, I consulted my, my consultant, um, Google, on, mm -hmm. on this. And this is for the FX9 and FX6. So this is an FX system. It says the shockless wife controls the speed at which the white balance changes when you switch the white balance switch from A to B memory positions. And so that's actually, uh, so it, so what it is, is it's not what I just said, which is increasing the knee. It's, it's actually just says, if you're gonna change it, it's gonna slowly move from one white balance to another. So smooth out our transition so you don't yeah, get so a sudden jump pop. on white balance. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, Greg Gibson. 
Whoops, you're muted, Greg. So Sony's positioning this too as as a high end broadcast camera as it should, and then and it was actually used uh, on Monday Night Football this past week. I don't know exactly what the shot was, but I know that they had a couple of cameras um, set up. But um, as far as like white balance and things go, I know that one of the things that is going to be added to this uh, over the next year and a half is they are going to put in a full like broadcast paint uh, solution for it. So you'll actually be able to go in here and have all the standard broadcast tools that people who are used to using the higher end broadcast cameras uh, are used to as far as being able to set exposure, white balance and color. That's pretty exciting. They see this less as just a camera and more as a platform to build on as they go forward. That's pretty, that 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 kind of makes you feel good about the investments you make now. Next question. From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. What is the lens weight limit on the FR7? I wonder how long a lens could be used. Greg? Whoops, again, muted. Sorry, I've got a little bit of a frog in my throat and I keep clearing my throat and I don't want to like steal the, I don't want to steal the active speaker again. Um, You're fine. But yeah, so as I said earlier, any E-mount lens will in theory fit on the camera. So in theory, again, you could put a 600 F4. I don't know what the weight of it is. Um, you probably wouldn't need to make some modifications to it, you know, for stability. You know, you probably have to have some additional support or additional tripod for the lens and connect it to the camera. But bring um, in the Tinker Toy rig to support right, it. <laughs> right. You can get um pan tilt with any lens up to the 70 to 200. So you can still move and control the head up to 70 to 200. 100, 400, 200, 600, 400, 600 F4, you have to lock the head down. You don't get the pan tilt with that. That makes sense. Uh Noah. Yeah, the 28 to 135 is a three point uh, one pound or three pounds one ounce something like that so it's a fairly heavy lens um yeah and chuck is showing it right now too um so generally speaking um like like greg just outlined there's all there's all those different lenses that go with e-mount but you can adapt and use um uh, ef mount if you wanted to which is the canon glass um i'm curious to see if like the 17 to 120 would work um, I would have to run the numbers and see weight-wise because I think that's a six-pound lens. So it might be outside of spec, but um, if we could swing that with maybe some counterweights, we'll see. You need to get one of those big wildlife photographer 30-pound <laughs> Canon white lenses to see if it'll do an EF uh, yeah, adapt. Uh, Greg Gibson. I mean, I, th I think... I think there are going to be more lenses coming. I think I have to think with this platform, it, you know... The door is wide open, and I think there have to be some more lenses coming. I know Sony just released a really nice 16 to 35 power zoom lens not too long ago. That's actually a really, really nice lens. The one thing about the 28 to 135 is that is a pretty old lens in the Sony lens lineup. You know, I would say that lens has been around since probably 2014, 2015. So it doesn't have any of the really nice new technology. At, when Sony made the 400 uh, 2.8 lens, they they converted that from focusing the lens by turning the elements in the barrel. So when they made the 400 2.8, they actually put the um, the elements on a rail. So they have a rail system now. And so they slide the elements forward and backward instead of twisting them in the lens. So that is, uh, it takes, it's much faster for one. It's less torque. It takes less battery power. And every lens that they've made since the 400-2.8, so the 135-1.8, the 24-1.4, uh, the 51-2 that I'm using right now, um, any lens that was made since, I think it was 2019, since about mid-2019, 
has that linear rail system in it. And so the, the 28 to 135 is due for an update. And so I'd like to see the 28 to 135 uh, updated because I think it's a good focal length. Man, I'd really like to see a 70 to 200 F4 lens with power zoom on it. So that's the one that I'm looking for. Okay. Noah, you have a last thought before we move on? Yeah. I mean, it is an older lens that's it paired nicely with the FS7, FS5 series. Um, and it does translate well to the FR7. But yeah, I, I completely agree. It would be nice to see some new glass. Next question. From Noah Sargent, Fullerton, California, here on our panel. Can we talk about the web interface versus the internal menu? Uh, Mitchell, start us off. I kind of like to set the precedent here, or the uh, uh, the reference. Um, I have an FX3, and I've hated the menu on it for ages, but the uh, 2.0 update on it has improved it. It seems like they're leaning towards uh, the FX6 in terms of menu layouts, and uh, the web is doing the same thing. So it seems like Sony hears us. Noah? I'm going to fly in blind for a minute here, so forgive me. Um, I'm going to basically cover my screen and talk about this, but I can hear, so if anybody wants to jump in and ask. But, yeah, so you have, I would say, 70% of the menu on the web interface. So you basically type in or you uh, scan the URL and you go to it on your local network and you can access the camera. Um, and so you have, you know, several pages of, of different um, menus items here, which is, which is pretty nice to have a lot of this built in. What I... Digging into this menu, even though there are tons of things listed here, um, it doesn't actually have all of the same settings. So if I go back to live, this will show a live preview of my camera here, and I'll click on the menu, and you'll just see that just like with Sony, you you just have so many more pages and settings that you would in, in most other cameras. I have to say it is pretty well laid out um, as far as the interface and where stuff is, but um, I've gone through this twice now, and there's definitely, I would say, I, I'm familiar with maybe 80% of what's in the menu here, and then 20% is like, oh, this is something I need to learn or grow in. But Greg or Chuck, did y'all have any thoughts as far as this goes? Yeah, Greg. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I think Noah, for one, like Noah's showing the uh, menu right now, that is actually, I believe, the actual FX6 menu. So I believe that the yes. menu system is is identical to what's in the FX6. I'm going to um, <clears throat> have a little screen thing going here. So <clears throat> this is the um, the web controller. Um, so you see you have all of your uh, exposure, white balance. Um, I'm using a Cinetone profile right now. I've got a little um, minus six added to the Cinetone just to pop my blacks a little bit. Um, I've actually, with the 1.2 lens, I've got um, a quarter ND filter applied. So I'm actually using an ND filter right now, even though I'm indoors because I'm using the uh, F1.2 lens. Uh, one thing we really haven't talked about is ISO performance. And so the camera really has two two native ISOs. It has a um, it has an ISO 800 and I believe an ISO 12,800 on the high side. So um, I think it might go be 4,000 actually. 4,000? Okay. I think so. But still, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, I'm not certain about that. I, we need to look that up and verify that, Noah, because I think that it's the same sensor as the A7S 3 and the FX3. And if that's the case, then it would be uh, I, it would be 800 and 12,800. So um, cool. we should okay, look cool. that up. Let me Google that real quick. <clears throat> but I know with the, um, when we haven't even talked about the noise, but I mean, just the high SO performance on this camera is going to be phenomenal. It's going to be cool. Well, it's not like Sony is known for incredible right. low light performance. Right. It's, it's going to be equal to the A7S 3 um, yeah, absolutely. And so you see on the side over here, um, there's a number of different menus that you have access to. You can adjust your pan tilt speed here. 
Um, and then you can actually move here. Um, I have not, I use, I have the controller, I have the physical controller, and that's typically what I use. Um, I will say I've had a little bit of some issues. One, I've needed to use the clear image zoom, so I haven't really been able to utilize presets. And so I did, like in my event that I was doing the other day, I did try to do some manual moves. And let me just tell you, they, they were not good. So I was really, when I was scrubbing through those videos, I was trying to avoid those places where I manually moved the camera because they were just not good. And one of the issues I've had is that I could not get the um, the zoom speed to match the pan tilt speed. And so I would start moving the camera and the the zoom would go much faster than the pan tilt would. So I couldn't get that to match. Wait, that, wait, but. wait. You weren't perfect the first day you ever used the kit. That's uh, no, I'm man. shocked here. Well, and let me tell you, I um so I got these cameras on Wednesday or Thursday of last week. I opened the box on Saturday. I spent all day Saturday, all day Sunday um testing them. And let me just, I'm gonna save you guys a lot of time right now. If you do get the controller, the RM-IP500 uh, Sony controller, or if you're planning to use any other uh, external controller, um, you need to use Visca. And there is a dip switch setting on the camera that you have to turn on in order to turn on Visca over IP. And that is very poorly documented in the Sony <laughs> manuals. And it took me, I, I'm telling you, I spent about six hours trying to figure that out. So I'm going to save you guys some time. Look at those dip switches. You got to turn dip switch three on to get Visca over IP, and that, and then you can get the camera to talk to the um, to the controller. But if I didn't have, so over on the left here um, is where you could set presets. And unfortunately, I've got um, clear image zoom is actually turned on, so you can see that all of my presets are grayed out. But it's really easy to create a preset once you've got that set up. So you just basically set your camera position that you want and you click the little plus button and then it'll show you like a little frame grab of that position. And, and then all you do when you want to hit one of those presets is you just double click it and the camera will go there. And then you can change like in the um, pan tilt speed. There's a number of other things that you can change here with the dial. So I could go in here and change the zoom speed. Right. And then you've got your um, AF priority here. I will tell you guys, like if you're using... Um, face and eye detect. Like if you want to focus on something that's not a face or an eye, it is really hard to get the camera to change the focus. Like for example, if I wanted to make the camera focus on my microphone, it'll do it when I click on it, but then it'll go right back to the face. So if you want to focus on something besides a face or an eye, you really need to go in here and turn that off and change it. So to not something a good else. camera for ear tracking. Exactly. We have a, we still have 14, right? Seven, no, 12 questions ahead of us. And I know there are a lot of people. Noah, real quick, before we move on, I want to get as many people's questions handled sure. as possible. Um, Greg, I think we're both right, which is weird to say. Um, so the FX9 listed on the website is base 80, uh, 800 and 4,000. However, there's another chart that says the S-Log3 is 812,800. So um, I wonder if it's the color... Uh, the profile that you're in and you have different bases for that, but we'll have to look into that more. That kind of makes a little sense. Let's go on to the next question and get some of our people who have popped them in taken care of. And it's from Ronnie Hofsey in Tromsø, Norway. What about stabilizer and vibration on a stage where there are high music thundering through the venue? Alex? Yeah, I mean, in general, you're not going to have the camera do that. You're going to do that through mounting. I mean, you know, how you mount it, where you mount it. 
Um, it's typically, you know, I don't know how the stabilization works within the Sony, but uh, what we've t tended to find is we have to really find hard points that we can connect it to. Makes sense. Mitchell, do you have a real quick thought about that? Yeah, Noah did a demo last night and it was amazing. Okay. Uh, Noah, what did you use to mount it and how did you get it really stabilized there? Yeah, well, I just have the, uh, it's actually a prompter people uh, tripod. Um, and I didn't have anything like on stage that was super shaky necessarily. But um, to Alex's point, yeah, doing doing it from the, the mount system, right? Getting it solid is probably the best bet. Second best bet is um, within the lens. Certain lenses have optical stabilization. Um, I believe, I, I don't quote me on this, but I think the 20 to 135 has uh, a setting for that as well. And then obviously you have the lens and, or, or I'm sorry, the sensor itself that you could also stabilize. I'm trying to look through the menu if it's built into this, but I haven't found it yet. So if your camera's next to a Marshall stack, your mileage may vary. Let's move on to the next question. Jonas Donnell in Stuttgart, Germany. What are the available APIs? Alex? I don't believe the API has been um, has been released yet for it to have any direct access to it, but the you can use Visca as a back end to get a controls of lots of the of it. That's a standardized system that you could possibly use. Noah, yeah, I, I'm trying to figure out Visca for Stream Decks and Xbox controllers. I haven't figured it out yet, probably because I haven't ever done it before. But it's always good to learn. A next question. Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. Is this the type of camera game changer that would cause you to sell all your Canon lenses and move to Sony? Alex. It's pretty close. I mean, I, I have to figure out, you know, when I'm going to get one. <laughs> because the when is, is the thing. Just financially figure out what, what I'm going to what I'm gonna invest in. But I think that uh, I'm pretty close to this is what I want to use in my studio. Um, you know, I think that a studio built around these is pretty impressive. Noah? So I kept my Canon glass and I bought Sony on top of it. So I don't know, maybe I'm a hoarder. <laughs> you might be, it's possible. Uh, I will say that even Canon is moving away from uh, the standard EF mount stuff. They've got the R mount and other things. So, you know, you're kind of in a world now where everything is changing. These new devices are coming out. And if you want to keep up, you're going to lose some legacy technology behind you. Next question. Paul Buchan in Columbus, Ohio, ask, what paint box controls do you have and where are they available? Web interface, controller? Noah? So this is something I'm moving into. I don't have set up for myself right now. Typically on my FS5s, there were no shade controls, live controls like that for that camera. So um, I built a custom LUT, very light LUT that I um, imported on all those cameras. I'll probably start there with the FR7, but over time um, we might develop a built um, uh, uh, central location for iris control and, and focus control and that kind of stuff, uh, along with the PTZ operator. And Greg Gibson. Oops, still muted, Greg. Sorry, Bill, I haven't played with it enough to really um, dive into those, those things a lot. Um, you can load LUTs into it. So there is a, um, a spot in the menu here that you can do um, you can add some LUTs. Um, right now, you're sort of limited to, um, there's a few, uh, Cinetone, a standard look, uh, ITU, uh, Rec. 709. Um, but there's a lot of adjustments that you can make to it. And um, you can as I said- you can, you can load LUTs? Yes, you can. Okay, there you go. You're, yeah. you're, yes, you can. Options, yeah. All right, yep. uh, next question. 
Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana, asking Panasonic UE150 has very smooth movement with the RP150. How good is the Sony movement, and what controllers are you using? Chuck, help us out. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I love that Sony controller. That's what we've been using at times when I have to turn off my auto tracking. That Panasonic controller has been very smooth. I've been able to zoom and 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 adjust. Now, I don't have the Sony controller in yet. I do have the MHC Polymotion controller. It's a USB controller, but with generic generic Visca over IP, I've still been able to get smooth movement. Now, unfortunately, I'm in the studio right now, so I can't demonstrate that for you, but this is what I was mentioning earlier, is just the smooth movement that I could get from the web app is what blew my mind. And if if that controller has any kind of the same type of curve and ability to accelerate and everything like th- like this does, then I'll be very happy with it. And then there are times, even though we have a smallish studio, there are times when we do moves and sweeps, we sometimes have moving moments or a song or something. And I will do some actual moves live on camera. And it's super important for us to have that smooth, smooth acceleration and smooth move. So... I can't so do you, you feel like you can actually but, do that ease in and ease out even over a web interface? Yeah, I'm doing this live right now just from my thumb on this iPad. That's pretty impressive. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's what blew me away. Is the, uh, No other PTZ software that I've experienced has allowed me to move that smoothly. Very nice. Very nice. Greg? I uh, Unfortunately, I can't demonstrate it. I do have the controller, and the controller works really well. It has a really nice, there's like a little um, like acceleration, deceleration on the moves that just make it really smooth. I mean, it really looks like there's a person moving the camera when you do it right. You know, one one thing to be aware of, too, though, with the controller, um, the standard button configuration that comes on the controller has changed with the FR7. And they actually um, are supposed to be providing an overlay that you can put on top of the controller that has the correct button labels on it. And I think... I'm not certain. I got to look this up, but I because I had this problem of being able to match the zoom speed to the pan tilt speed, and so when I was trying to do some manual moves, my zoom kept outrunning my pan tilt. And I think it's because the um, the zoom speed button on the controller has actually changed and moved to a different position, and I just didn't know what it was. But yeah, it's uh, like Chuck says, when you do it right, it's uh, it's really really smooth. It's buttery smooth. Noah, I mentioned this earlier. I'm, I'm- I've used a few um, keyboards before PTZ controllers, and I've been very frustrated with um, how slow it is. I felt like I was texting on those Curie keyboards from like the 90s, you know, where you're trying to think through and type fast and you can't because your thumbs can't move fast enough. That's how I feel about these controllers. Like they're very frustrating because you're trying to move a camera or several cameras and do these presets. Sometimes it's really cool where you can hit a preset and everything moves at once. However, if you're trying to move or adjust something, you might grab the wrong camera. I've done that on a live show before. All that to say, I would like a dedicated joystick to each one of my cameras. Um, so I'm, what I'm thinking of doing is an Xbox controller where two joysticks, hopefully one would control uh, two different cameras, I should say. One controller, two cameras, um, and then a stream deck for presets. Like, that's my hope, to do a couple controllers that way. If that doesn't work out, I might have to buy multiple, um, like, Sony controllers. We'll see. Greg, did you want to amplify on that? Oops, you're muted again. Sorry. Um, I'm actually glad Noah brought that up because um, I think the the best workflow for this camera 
is to have the physical controller to do your actual moves with, but you do need to have the web interface up in order to be able to um, to paint or change your exposure and, and um, control autofocus. So you can actually point and click autofocus. So with the mouse, you can just click on it. Like if you're shooting down, you know, like some of that video that I showed and I scraped through, I could click on either person and I could change the focus to that. An ideal workflow, I think, would be to have um, a tablet for each camera behind the controller. So you've got your controller set up, you've got a tablet behind with each camera, and then you can go in. I, I found a little cumbersome. I did it with the web interface on a monitor, and, and it was a little cumbersome to open, like go to the different windows. So I think having those tablets that you could just like punch with your finger right behind the controller would be an ideal workflow for it. Nice. Next question. From Jonas Dattel in Stuttgart, Germany, how good is the joystick on the controller? From the results people are getting, it sounds looks like it's pretty good, Alex. Now, do you guys have the controllers yet, or are you still waiting for them? As far as you're talking about the, if we're talking about the physical controller, I haven't, Alex. Great. I just didn't set it up because I didn't have the desk space for it. Got today. it. Okay. <laughs> so, but it's yeah, the controller is really nice. Noah. I don't have it yet. Um, like I said, I'll, I'm trying to hold off, but we'll see. If I have to bite the bullet, I'll bite the bullet. Uh, next question. That was Sergeant Fullerton, California. What limitations or bugs have you found so far? Uh, Chuck. Yeah, so far, the biggest one for me was the clear image zoom, not being able to save presets in either the web interface or on my generic Visco over IP system, the, the MHC Polymotion. So I couldn't save or recall presets when I had clear image zoom enabled. Um, I've messed with it a little bit more. I'm not sure, but I just turned it off, and that's how I'm able to do all these presets today. But that's that's a big bug for me. Um, nothing else really as far as bugs. Everything else is really super accessible. The web interface makes it easy to get to mostly all the settings, even the camera settings, uh, in-camera settings. I have an idea that I haven't tried yet, and that will be to run program audio into the camera, Everything here, because we stream over Zoom, I run at 1080p, but I'm planning on using the SD card in camera to record certain segments or even promo videos in 4K. I'm going to try that out, and I'll report back how that goes, but that's one of the ideas we're going to try. Nice. Greg? A couple things. Um, one, you can run the camera on power over Ethernet plus plus, okay? So... You don't have to necessarily use the AC power adapter. You can put um, run power over Ethernet plus plus unless you're going to record in the camera. If you're going to record in the camera using the built-in SD card slots, you cannot use uh, power over Ethernet. Another thing, too, is that um, I put the overlay back up on the screen here. HDMI out, you cannot get HDMI out unless you completely turn off the web interface overlay. Okay, so the camera is designed to be used with SDI out. Now you could use a converter if you if you're using a Blackmagic uh, ATEM with the HDMI in, and you want to use HDMI in, you can do an use an SDI converter to run that out. But what you have to do, I'm just going to cut over here to the um, interface. If you want to be able to use clean HDMI out, you have to go over here into the settings, go to monitoring, output display, and you have to turn off this HDMI stream. Um, Sony is using the HDMI uh, RTSP for the web interface. And so now I've turned that off. And so now you can see that that overlay is gone. 
I can use this little button right here. There's a display button. So if I had that turned on, I could turn off the physical overlay. It That does not turn off the eye autofocus. So you'd still get the eye autofocus. So the only downside to this is, is now I can't see my focus point, right? So I can't, I don't see like the critical. It's not that big of a deal because I could still point and click. So if I had multiple people here, I could click on the screen on the per person that I wanted in focus. It just won't show me the focus point on the screen. It's not that big of a deal, but if you want that visual feedback of where you're actually putting the focus point, um, you can't get it. You can't get clean HDMI out. And Noah, real quick. Yeah, I think on the web app, it would be really nice to have the ability to go to like a larger controller. Um, that way you can do zoom uh, more smoothly and I mean the joystick more smoothly, even though it's pretty good in that little tiny corner. Um, I would also like to see the full menu online. So I have all the features and functions um, and just make them symmetrical. Nice. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, could you rig the FR7 as a monitor top camera on the desktop? Uh, does anybody who's been using it know? I, I can't think of a reason why not, but Alex? You can make any camera a desktop camera <laughs> just with, the, with, with enough uh, mounting tools. Uh, yeah, so anything, I put an F950, uh, Sony F950, a Star Wars camera right over top of a. Is there a quarter desktop. 20 on this thing? <laughs> yeah, there, it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's just a function of, of uh, rigging. <laughs> Chris Fanwick, real quick. Well, Alex, I have to ask uh, you in the past, many, many, many times have said, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna get into the ATEM world, get into the ATEM cameras. Uh, compatibility, connectability. Does this make you think that uh, Grant and our friends down under should really, really be making a similar style camera? Oh yeah, but we've been telling them that for a decade. Like, like literally, you know, almost every meeting with, with, uh, you know, at a trade show or something with Blackmagic, PTZs have come up. Like it's just, it, it, you know, when you, as soon as we saw the micro, uh, we all thought that should be on a PTZ. And so that has been a, uh, you know, I, I don't know why we don't have one, but it has been a pretty common request, you know, of, of those things. And, and so, and, you know, the full frame and the, 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 the advantage, the hard part that Blackmagic would have to be competitive in this area is really um, the autofocus, the Sony autofocus is, is pretty dramatic, you know, as far as the quality goes. And so I think that that's going to be a real challenge for for Blackmagic to 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 be in it because the problem with full frame is that full frame to do what we're doing here, you need um, and I'm using a Blackmagic camera. I mean, for people watching, <laughs> that's what I'm using a six K. Um, but but I think that the problem is is that the um, is that they don't have that technology that Sony has. And so when you do the really short depth of field that Greg's showing, you'll be out of focus half the time, you know, cause you'll lean forward or back. You need that camera to be able to, 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 to make those focus changes to, to use that short depth of field. And so um, that's one of the big problems we have when we put a, even a super 35, 75 feet back or a hundred feet back on a, in a, um, in a, at a stage, we can't keep the focus. Like we're, we, you know, because we're zooming all the way in, and we have to be pretty wide open on most stages because they just don't have enough light. And so now the the depth of field is like an inch. And and you know, and so everything's going in and out all the time. And so you really need that the assist that is you're getting from the Sony is really something that's um that's super, super important um in that process. But I think that this is the first camera that I've seen in a long time that has me going, well, you know, maybe I don't need an entirely integrated ecosystem, <laughs> you know, like, so um, generally I've been like, if you have a black magic, this, as Chris said, you just have, 
all black magic because it's easier to work with. But the quality on this camera is, you know, it's interesting. Greg, last thoughts? Yeah, just to reinforce what Alex said, focus is really critical on this camera, even at F4. Um, you know, with a one inch sensor camera, a lot of times maybe the critical focus might be off by one. Like if you're doing that down, if you're doing a multi-person panel and you're kind of doing that down the line shot and the critical focus is maybe not quite on the person that's talking, the depth of field, the inherent depth of field of that one inch sensor would cover you on it. This camera, it's not going to do it. So if you're shooting at F4, or even F2.8 with some of the other lenses, you've really got to pay attention to where your critical focus is. Absolutely. Chris, you have one quick thought and we'll do our last question and we'll be finished for the day. Yeah, I, as Alex, I'm also using one of the Blackmagic 6Ks um, and I keep my f-stop at about 3.2, I think, just so I can lean a little bit and not lean way out of focus. Yeah, it's, you know, the, if you're in the, no, you're either your nose or your eye is in focus mode, it becomes a little iffy to have to stay in one place. Last question of the day. From Douglas Carmichael, the FR7 has a timecode input. How would you use it when the camera itself doesn't have any recording capability? Noah? So it does have record capability. It has a CF Express and an SDHC, I believe, card slots on it. And there's two. So you can set um, redundancy. So they'll both record the same simultaneous recording. And you can do a proxy record um, in, onto those SD cards as well. Nice. And uh, that takes us through this. This has been an incredible show. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming in. Greg Gibson uh, helping us out today for the first, uh, I haven't seen him in a while. Um, Chuck Wojak and Noah Sargent. Uh, this camera is really exciting. A lot of people have been talking about it, and it's great to have a look through this. Don't forget, tomorrow we had a little change of subject kind of midweek, and we're going to be talking about the uh, chat GPT, this thing that is kind of sweeping the planet right now. So that'll be our discussion for the second hour tomorrow. Um, as always, thanks to everybody who participated in the show. We want to particularly thank all of our um, producers, all of you who added questions into the queue today and kept the dialogue and the conversation going. The panelists here, it was an extraordinary day for panelists, and we want to thank everybody here. And, of course, everybody on the back end of the show who are uh, going to be showing up here in the credits as we roll them through the end. We appreciate your being here every day, and it's just a joy, I think, to gather together and discuss all this stuff. So roll the credits. Thank you very much, and we will see you all tomorrow. I keep on trying to put this fire out of my wallet. It's just, it's just like, I, I, it's, it's, it's like an expensive day today. It's like one of those candles. You, 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 you wave really quickly. You go, no, 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 no. And then, and then it goes, poof, and, and the fire comes back up again. And you're like, no, 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 no. I can't. The IRS has a good extinguisher for that. <laughs> Having a senior moment of Wojak and a Gibson on the show at the same time. Awesome. Am I section 179, $150,000? Is that okay? Chuck, I'm definitely liking that background. 79 every year. Thank you, one and all. Great show. Bye.